she is your brother's horrible ex-girlfriend who is very mean to you. Yeah, who you just have never seen You never for. liked her. She's always been bitchy to you. And now she's your boss? X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is returning guest, Teeny Howard. Hi! Current writer at Marvel, best known for Excalibur, fresh off the massive, massive event, Ten of Swords, the first franchise-wide event of the Krakoa era, which just concluded this week as we're recording. It sure did. You and Jonathan Hickman were the primary architects of that together. So kudos, because I think it's one of the best X-Men events of all time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Jordan White, Pepe Larath, Mahmoud Asrar, Marta Gracia, the whole team turned it out. Incredible team effort. Like real dream team. I've never seen just wa- watching it happen, you know, being a part of it and watching the whole team just work together and it's, it's incredible they're like they're they, i had to just say all their names because they're an incredible machine and, and they were are, i mean pepe's mind that guy i mean pepe lorad is one of the greatest artists working in the medium yeah today, i think i mean when you say architect it's like a literal architect he builds the world for us built other worlds yeah. from the ground up i hope the hardcover has all of his concept art like, I would die for all of that. Yeah, he's he's incredible. We didn't give him a small task in, in issue two. Well, issue stasis number one, the second uh, tentpole part of Ten of Swords. We gave him a really big challenge, which was, you know, okay, I want you to establish all of these kingdoms in one panel. And I had, like, a giant, like, 20-page document I'd written about, like, all these kingdoms um, that Jonathan and I had worked on. Which you'd already boiled down into those data pages, because you wrote all of those. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, that was a big order. But so much of, like, I mean, I remember talking to Jonathan before uh, I wrote script for Pepe, because I wanted his advice, because, you know, he'd done House of X, so beautiful, uh, and, you know, so much of what he said was just, like, let Pepe flex. You don't need to worry. Like, you can give him your references, and he will pull in other amazing references, and he's no matter he's gonna turn in something more beautiful than you can conceive of anyway so just give him what he needs and get the hell out of his way and that was the best advice possible (laughs) didn't he come up with pog or pog just based on the description like a monster yes we would like a monster and we got uh (laughs) we got the x-men's own gritty (laughs) were you also part of creating all the sword bearers or was that more jonathan and pepe together or were you in the mix there Everything was like so much of of everyone. Here, wait, before it gets any warmer, let me open my champagne. Open your champagne. Yeah, we can hear my little my little uh, cork pop to celebrate the end of Ten of Swords. I'm at my computer. I hope it doesn't make a mess. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Love it. Well, Mazel Tov on completing this event. Oh, it's really thank an you, my friend. Thing. Thank you. And getting through those two weeks when people were confused. Oh boy. Before we got into the foam stretch. Oh my god, I spent two whole weeks off Twitter. It was really, really good for my brain, but I had to. Yeah, that was probably smart. I just, I, I've never had anything this major come out on the schedule before, and people, I just couldn't. The, the noise. It was overwhelmingly kind, but it was also, you know, a lot of 
I get it. I'm a fan. I watch TV shows and read comics and say, of you know, course, what the hell's going to happen next? And it's wild to have all of that attention driven. Yeah. Right at you. Yeah. It's a really amazing thing. I, I'm really, really incredibly grateful that it happens. I'm really incredibly grateful that I uh, get to create such big stuff for such a dedicated fandom. But um, sometimes I, I have to hide from it. And I did. Right. <laughs> uh, and it's it's funny, like the timing of this this event has been so so wild i was like talking about it on twitter that we like finished the book for good on election day and yeah it came out right before thanksgiving so it was like this metaphor of like killing a beast and then celebrating (laughs) we work together on your stuff outside of marvel and so i just know that every time i've checked in with you over the last six months it's just been like well there are 500 moving pieces right now and it sounds like all of you were working so hard just hours on end yeah. On the phone, on Zoom and everything. I mean, the office is so collaborative. And this event is sort of a testament to that, right? Everything leads so seamlessly into the next chapter that you can forget sometimes which book each chapter is. Well, and you know, I, you asked me earlier too about Jonathan and Pepe and the Swordbearers and all that. And so like, yeah, when it when it kind of came to, to craft that, we kind of realized that we had a, a, a lot to do. Uh, Jonathan kind of was like, I'm going to do this fam... Like, The way we initially tackled the amount of work we had to do was... It's a lot of world building. Yeah, like the way we kind of started some of that. And like, I hate getting too much into how the sausage gets made because then people like look back at it, I feel like, right? Like if you... Right. If you attribute or whatever, it it, sometimes it becomes part of the dialogue about the character. And that I want to avoid. Yeah, like who created such and such character is something that goes on the wikis and things. Right, right, right. Or it becomes part of the history that so-and-so created this or so-and-so created that so i'll say that everything you see on the page goes through so many people and so many hands and so many changes but just with the vast amount of stuff we had to do and because the way jonathan and i work we're both like we like to poke our heads up ask for ideas like chatter at each other for a little while and then go off separately and come back again it was kind of just like well he's gonna go work on all these sword bearers and i'm gonna go work on all these locations okay break Mm -hmm. and then we came back to each other with like pitches and a lot of those things changed there are a lot of things that exist now that weren't in the original pitches. There are a lot of things that just happened as the story, you know, would be writing. We'd say, well, these these characters maybe don't have a relationship or maybe these characters don't have this power or whatever, but we need it for the story now. So we'll grant that to them. You know, we wanted someone to do this. It works if this character does it. I mean, we have that slack that we're all in all the time. You know, so much of what we know is going on in various people's books at any given time is less because we like formally read outlines and stuff. It's just because we talk to each other all the time. So it's like, right. I'll pipe up and be like, hey, here's what I'm thinking of doing in six months in Excalibur. Does anyone want to play with it? Is anybody doing anything that can touch that? So a lot of what looks like impeccable planning is really just the result of like a lot of people working together with no ego. And all of these things that like work together really seamlessly and seem like these seamlessly moving parts that must have been like choreographed really hard from the get go are just like, not really. It's more like a bunch of people who are really good cooks in a kitchen together, you know, Yeah. who are more likely to be like, oh, well, you know, that would be really good with this on top of it, but you probably don't have time to make it, but I'll do it because I actually make a really good one. And then it makes me look good too, because the so- I'm going to make the sauce. Like, right. And it's all a rising tide. Sort of yeah. Like, and like, yeah. you didn't chop these onions for my sauce, but you're not using them and they sure will be good in my sauce. So I'm going to just scoop these onions off your cutting board. And like, it's like, oh man, like I wasn't using, you know, like we work like that. And like, I'm really really impressed that it comes off like a symphony because it's really a lot more like a jam band. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think with Ten of Swords, the COVID delay gave you guys time to pause and reconfigure and adjust. I had nothing else to do. Everything feels really measured. Yeah, I, I had nothing else to do. Like I told people, I was like, this book was my year, and it, it really was. To the risk of other things, like my dear prose agent. Um. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I'm not mad. As I said to Jordan two weeks ago. Yeah, he was like, please, you guys are going to me ragged. I was like. <laughs> but as I said to him, I was like, no, I'm kidding. Please continue to put her on every book because. Well, thank you. Listen, first of all, I love your work. Second of all, the more work you put out there that people love, the easier it'll be for me to sell your prose work. So yeah. I'm not bothered. I asked about the sword bearers just because those characters are hidden. So profoundly with the fandom. I mean, it's really fascinating how quickly people became so attached to Iska the Unbeaten and Bay the Blood Moon and a couple of these other characters. And so I was just curious because I think they're going to become a pretty iconic part of the X tapestry. Oh, I mean, people love them so much. I mean, I guess spoilers, you should probably, if you haven't read all of Ten of Swords. Oh, no, this is spoilers. I've already told people on Twitter. Like, okay, good. Yeah, read, yeah. Read this Destruction is, before you This is Ten of Swords spoiler zone. People are so stoked about those characters. They're like, it's, they're like not even upset about losing Apocalypse. <laughs> right, no. Well, because Apocalypse's story feels like it's concluded well. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And these like characters people, are new and full of possibility. Right, right. Like people are really happy that they they feel like they got the good end of the stick, which is great. You know that people are loving them so much. We love them a lot. Like it, I'm really glad that everyone loves them as much as we do. And I think part of that is because we had 22 chapters written by so many different people. Mm-hmm. So you get all these great moments, like like for example, you and Jordan were talking about on the Brian Braddock episode, right? Like in everything I had to do, I didn't get time to write a great moment about Brian struggling with his sobriety, but Jerry. Invented. Right. And like that's part of what works for the new character as well is like, you know, I can write moments of Bay or Iska or the White Sword and have them, you know, reflected from one angle. And then in, you know, in Jonathan's chapter, Jerry's chapter, Vita's chapter, Leah's chapter, they can show us another version of those characters. And so people end up getting hit from all sides really early on with who these characters are and how they're seen and what they're like. And it just serves them up, man. And they look beautiful. They're such a, they're such a beautiful family. Like, Apocalypse has such a beautiful family. <laughs> the reveal that Isco was Genesis's sister was like, yeah, so this is the most stunning family we've seen in generations right the hottest sisters of 10,000 BC or whatever it was right yeah like when these when these <laughs> kids were born they were like they were like the blue ivies of <laughs> right the world. like, it was like, like this is the family it's like Unsubner and have you met his wife yeah and have you met her sister her sister can't lose right they're they feel very mythological to me I think that's why I like them they feel to me they feel very much like you know um a pantheon you know, like why everyone likes the Greek gods, right? It's like yeah. all these great heroic stories, but also, you know, did you hear about Solomon and how he broke up a relationship? And how he like <laughs> broke up worse marriage, right? With like bisexual drama. That was a very Greek myth moment that I enjoyed. Yeah. Solomon was another character too that we were like, and it's so funny. We like talk in the Slack too about how like on any given week, we'll all have like a different favorite. And it's like, even among, in inside the Slack, we're all very much like, like, they're fun characters to do that with. They're fun to look at and be like, oh, I love Solemn. I love Summoner. I love Bay. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. They turned out They turned out so well. I'm so proud of them. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, I had no particular feelings on Bay until the stuff with Doug, which is very Mr. Miracle and Big Barda to me, which is a dynamic that I always really enjoy. So I can't wait to see more of her carrying her small husband around 
protecting him from evil. Yeah, I think there's probably only one note through the entirety of Ten of Swords that, that Jonathan severely gave me more than once. And it was, she should pick Doug up like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> like he was really insistent that like, listen, this is like all for Like physically lift him. Yeah. This is all for naught if she doesn't carry him around like a purse dog. Perfect. It's where he belongs, I think. It's in a giant Amazon woman's purse translating things. Right. Like he's just, he's fine. Uh, He's fine with it. Well, he's always been very into, I mean, he had a crush on Betsy when he was young. He's always been very into powerful women. That's always sort of been his vibe. Yeah, to me, Doug understands so much of the world intimately that someone he doesn't inherently understand is fascinating. Well, that's a great hook. Yeah, the fact that he can't understand her and the only time he's not able to understand someone since he was 14 or whatever is Mm -hmm. really great. And so she's like compelling and mysterious to him, you know, mysterious enough to gaze at longer. And then you see that she's super pretty when she lifts the veil. So you're like, oh, well. Yeah, Phil Noto drew her just like so beautiful. Who wouldn't fall in love with her right away? (laughs) And I love that she similarly is just like this beautiful man. And it's Doug Ramsey. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that's extremely funny also. This sweet, gentle lamb that I will protect with my life. Like he is. Yeah. If you have told me he is my beloved, I will die for him. So speaking of powerful women, we are here today to talk about the Omniversal Magistrates, Opaluna Saturnine, Her Royal Wyness. (laughs) One of my favorite supporting characters in the X universe, but a pretty obscure character to fans at large until this event. And I know that she's dear to your heart and obviously this built out of Excalibur. So I'd love to hear a bit about how Saturnine came to be the focus of this event, who brought all that to the table, what you loved about writing her, because I know you're a big 80s Captain Britain fan. I am. So if you've been reading Excalibur since the beginning, you, I guess, may have picked up by now on the fact that she's been present since the very first issue. Mm-hmm. In my run, at least, she's mentioned as the White Witch. Also in the run of classic Excalibur, though. She yes, brings that's the true, too. Um, but in my run as well, she's, <laughs> she's present since the very beginning uh, in the presence of, of the White Witch that Morgan Le Fay is warring against. She was always someone I wanted to use. Um, she's always someone... That I really liked. I think the first thing about her that I decided I really loved was, and this is so gay, but like watching Kitty Pride really fall in love with her. Kitty Pride, the first time she sees her, is just like, I'm bisexual. What a woman. That's Kitty's queer, like, Ring of Keys moment. Yeah. Looking at the hologram of Opaluna Saturday. Right, exactly. She's like, <laughs> like, if Opal, if that was what had come out of R2-D2, Kitty would be Luke Skywalker. Like, <laughs> Yeah, truly, like, in a second. So I think that was where I first really noticed her was like, because, you know, I've always, like, had my eyes open for Kitty being gay. So <laughs> <laughs> whenever she notices a hot lady, I can't help but notice. But I, I, I don't know. I think I, I fell in love with her visually because she's drawn so beautifully first gorgeous all those alan davis designs for her are gorgeous yeah these these, she's just got that sumptuous uh like old hollywood um like i fluffed my hair up and put on my fur cloak and got out of bed now what (laughs) like attitude (laughs) that uh, i love and and, and there's a really easy boring answer to why i picked saturnine and it's because she has no power she is driven by ambition yeah And to me, that is the coolest thing ever. You know, I've joked before about how when I rate Betsy, you know, it's not an accident that I'm writing about a girl who does a job traditionally done by men and isn't sure if she's good about it. Uh, It's also not a coincidence that the the foil for her and another woman I really relate to is one who's just super ambitious and decided she was going to get 
the job she wanted that she felt like she deserved. We haven't in my Excalibur run yet explored why Roma no longer holds that role, mm-hmm. why she doesn't work for Roma, why uh, we've seen Roma and Merlin in Ten of Swords, and they appear to be running their own kingdoms of Otherworld and reporting to Saturnine, which is all fertile ground that we deliberately haven't yet trod upon. Well, it felt to me like a natural extension from X-Men Die by the Sword, the uh, crossover between New Excalibur and Exiles from back in the day, which was one of the first things, as Jordan noted on his episode, that he worked on as an editor, was Chris Claremont writing that miniseries. And it's not my favorite Claremont story, but it does bring all those Captain Britain stuff back, and he's always loved that. And he kept the character of Saturnine alive for many years by having her turn up in Fantastic Four or whatever he happened to be writing at the time. And uh, there's a great scene where Roma, for the first time, feels fear and feels that she could die and has never experienced that before. And Saturnine has been sitting with her the whole time and it's just like, oh, well, that's great because that means that maybe I could defeat you. And Roma's like, I didn't realize we were in conflict. And Saturnine's like, that's why you lose. We've always been in conflict. Yep. That's why I'll win. Yep. Like, of course, of course we are. That's what, I want exactly. your position. What What did you think I was doing here? And it's a very candid moment where she's just like, you know, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll deal with that other time. But it feels very natural. And after that, when other worlds would pop up, because Roma dies in that mini, and Saturnine was then sort of the face of other worlds whenever it would show up. So like in Secret Wars, most notably, when the Captain Britain Corps is destroyed. But there's also like a weird issue of Thor and Iron Man, where Diablo the Sorcerer drains energy from all the pantheons. And it's like the Greek gods, the Asgardian gods, and then like Saturnine. And you're like, huh. Yeah, I'll send you that. It's wild. I had never seen it until like yesterday. Yeah, I've never seen that. That's awesome. So it feels to me like a natural thing, but it still was a surprise because as you point out, in the classic stuff, Saturnine has no powers, and that is a big part of her character. But she has always, to me, been a more interesting character than Roma, who is sort of alien and removed and not especially human, whereas Saturnine has a lot of flaws and is extremely human. I mean, I think the difference between Roma and Saturnine is like the difference between someone who was like born to power and was like, ah, yes, power, this is part of what I'll do. Like, dad will have me help him do powerful stuff and someone who was born with nothing well nothing other than her will and her spirit and her ambition and that's all she needed yeah her intellect what i've always liked best about her is she'll run into the room with a giant machine gun if she needs to that's right for the most part she is a chess player i mean you know there's been a lot of joking about how she and emma frost look like each other because to modern readers, they do, but they also have that in common. But unlike Emma, who was a powerful psychic, Saturnine has only been able to manipulate people, to command legions, to find a way to achieve power through Roma. So I'm very excited to see how she got one over on Roma and Merlin, because it's been a long time coming, frankly. I think she's going to be a lot better at this job than they were. I mean, how many times did the multiverse get destroyed under Roma? I think fully twice. Well, I mean, yeah, Saturnine, you know, she's um, 
she's hungry for it. She wants it. Yeah, she wants it. I mean, that was also part was part of what was really fun about, you know, writing an event around her. It's like, it's kind of like the, what do you get for the man who has everything? Right. How do you motivate a woman who has literally, like, popped off her fake nails and clawed to the seat at the top of reality? And become God. Yeah. Like, how do you motivate her to do any of this? Like, sure, it's fun, but she's not arcade. Like... <laughs> Right. You know, why why does she do it? And it's like it's a you know, it's it's all distraction from a love spell. <laughs> yeah. It's the one thing that she has to try and like swindle herself into because it's something you, you can't just ask for love. It's not real that way. Right. And she wants Brian to want her. I mean, that's been constant since their first meeting right. in nineteen eighty one. But initially he sort of wants her and she's like, Oh, what are you talking about? you know it's very too cool for him and then as they get to know each other better it becomes clear that she's completely sprung it was also kind of important to me that like (laughs) i don't think saturnine's version of romance despite being kind of courtly fantasy characters i don't think her version of romance has anything to do with getting rescued because brian has rescued courtney like a ton yeah you know i i want brian to rescue me like i don't think she has any i don't think that gets her going at all like no she wants brian to be he would because he's a good man she doesn't want that she wants him to not rescue someone else because he's in bed with her that's what she right. wants she wants him to be her general i mean yeah and it goes back to saturnine i mean saturnine and saturn nine are probably pronounced the same but we have actually, to say i'm like, going to say saturnine which for the listeners the evil saturnine from earth 794 it's spelled s-a-t hyphen y-r hyphen the number, the number nine. nine so we're going to say saturnine for her just to clarify because the characters are very different but are equivalent to one another it's a visual medium you don't have to pronounce it it's, it's like, like beast and dark name. beast right exactly <laughs> so just because this is audio we'll we'll make a pronunciation difference but it does all go back to saturnine and captain Britton on earth 794 oh. he is her huntsman for her evil queen like yeah. that's their dynamic which is like thoughts about that story aside that that is a great beat right the version of yeah. her reality where they're together they're evil right it is very much that dynamic and saturnine of earth nine the saturnine we know is not evil in that sense but you get this vibe that she would be 1000 percent thrilled if brian was her loyal general and she was the evil queen of fairy mm-hmm. you know she's like well i'm not a fascist but I am a fairy queen now. Right. And you should be my huntsman. Like, that is right. the vibe. Right. There's a great moment, I remember, in the Davis Excalibur when she saves him uh, from his trial. Because he's put on trial for yes. violating the rules of the Captain Britain Corps. And she makes up a pardon from Roma and interrupts the trial. And just like, you know, it's like, let him go. But then when he storms the Starlight Citadel to confront Roma... Because he's been manipulated by Merlin, but also about the fact that Roma's been manipulating Excalibur from the beginning of the series. You cut to Saturnine in her bedchamber, and she's with this hunk. This, like, shirtless muscle man with a hairy chest who's, like, holding her. And someone goes, Lady Saturnine, Captain Britain of Earth 616 is attacking the Starlight Citadel. And she's like, I'll be right there. (laughs) And she goes and brings her machine gun and tries to stop him. And then he immediately twists the machine gun into a 
bendy shape and she is like wet (laughs) oh right we're on video and there's no audio so i just made like a spoony (laughs) flirty face but yeah she yeah she goes full wop because he turns her machine gun into a valentine truly like all i want is this man that's bad that's bad for me it's so good like it's 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 so funny because in like 99% of comic stories where like some powerful woman's foil is some man, I hate it. Like 99% of the time, it's like the most infuriating beat. But um, I really, I really love it in their relationship for some reason. And maybe that's because I have like creative power there. So I can not only like see it under the lens I like, I can take like creative action to strengthen the lens I like. But man, they're hot. <laughs> yeah, they're very hot. And it's also like, it is fun. Another thing that I like to look back on in retrospect is like Excalibur, the first arc of my run, where Morgan Le Fay is like, I'm, th- these mutants are, are bothering me. And also uh, Saturnine is pissed at me. I'm going to... I'm going to capture Captain Britain. Like, like in retrospect, yeah. it's like, does Morgan even really care who this guy is? Or is she just trying to be like... She's trying to piss off Saturnine. She's like, I got your boyfriend. Exactly. It's like, well, it must be what Saturnine wants. And she wants this guy. So do I win now? <laughs> what I love about it, because I agree, it's annoying to me sometimes, most of the time, when a female character is like one... Achilles' heel is like her love for a man. But what I like about it with Saturnine and Brian is that there's something very tragic about it. Yeah. Because Brian's great love, who died, is Courtney Ross. Yeah. And Courtney Ross is the Saturnine of Earth 616. Yep. And Saturnine, who killed Courtney and replaced her and had an affair with Brian while pretending to be her, has gotten to be with Brian. Courtney got to be with Brian. The only one who doesn't get to be with Brian is the Saturnine who loves him. And who is more successful than any other version of herself. Right. Because every Saturnine has a position of political power on her Earth. Yes. Including Courtney, who's this powerful banker who's a high society London person. Because she is, throughout all universes, ambitious and in love with Brian (laughs) in in some way. Yeah. Ambitious, tenacious, and tied to Captain Britain. Yes. So invariably, she finds a way to power. But Opaluna Saturnine of Earth 9 is the most successful of them all. And yet she has she never have. gotten to have Brian. That's right. And like that, you know, without getting too far ahead of myself, because this is like, again, this is one of those things where it's like, it's a character I'm currently writing, so I can't get too excited or like, I, right. you know, spoil well, my Well, that's own good work. to know. I mean, I assumed she was going to stick around, yeah. but I, I'm hopeful that Excalibur will be a Saturnine Palooza for the rest of time. Yeah, right? yeah, you'll um you'll keep you'll keep seeing her. If, if you've become a fan of hers through the events, stick around. Um she's still around. She's you know, she's not going to be in a bad mood forever. She's going to want to do something about it. Uh <laughs> Well, now that she knows she's hot for Betsy too after the little stained glass adventure. <laughs> I can't Anyway, um, <laughs> no comment, no comment, no comment. Uh, so, but yeah, like, I think, you know, I, I, I am a person who historically loves villainous characters because I just love the tragedy of someone being real awful in a real sympathetic way. I just love the, the tragedy of a bunch of either a bunch of bad choices or in Saturnine's case, uh, a bunch of really good choices that all come to nothing. Right. If you're her, like, okay, I'll, I'll get a little esoteric. And I'll reference something that both people have said to me about Betsy and also that you, something that you and Jordan talked about on your Brian episode, which is that 
okay, like let's look at this. So from from we'll we'll go into a little sausage and we'll talk about this as a storyteller. So one of the things you and Jordan mentioned on your air episode that I loved and that I is something I deal with a lot when I write Captain Britain and in characters in general because I like to put my characters through hell is that Captain Britain gets humiliated all the goddamn time. All the time. It's part of the job. It's part of the job that Brian is better at than Betsy because Brian can take an L way better. Right. Betsy's not good at losing. Betsy's whole, I mean, if people are like, wow, uh, I read your run of Excalibur and it seems like Betsy's a little depressed. I'm like, did you miss the first issue where she was living with her brother and his wife? Like, that's not generally (laughs) someone who's like super doing well is when they're just like crashing on family's couch. Like, you know, there, there is a story there of a woman who was doing poorly got given a job and we've all been there where it's like my friend or my sister or my cousin or my girlfriend or whatever is doing really bad but she just got a new job and I think this might be it for her I think she's gonna do really really well but the problem is is the job while it's super super illustrious and a great place of power is often about taking L's all the time. It's about taking L's all the time on the best day. And not only is it not the best day, there's a huge contingent of people that their whole political and religious and social take in this world is that you are the wrong person for it, no matter what. Inherently, because of who you are, a woman, a mutant, not Brian, whatever, you are the wrong person for this job and you will never be the right one. No wonder she's depressed, you know? Like, the, the journey of being frustrated with Betsy because she's not succeeding as captain yet is one that I want the reader to come along on. And if that journey has frustrated you to the point where you're like tired of Betsy, that's okay because it's okay to be tired of your friends when they're in a bad place in their life sometimes. (laughs) Like granted, you know, we try to not do that. We try to make ourselves emotionally available for people we care about, but I think it's sympathetic to look at someone you love and say, pick it up girl. What are you doing? Yeah. You know, if you've read Ten of Swords, you've gone on this journey where you've seen it just feels like another monkey's paw, right? We got a beautiful splash page of of all of those dozens and dozens of, of Captain Britons, and, and it is the the sword is in the hand of Betsy Braddock, and it will be now and forever. But again, that's not it's not ours, you know. Um, yeah, where's our Betsy? Right. Let's take that and let's contrast it. Let's pretend you're Saturnine or Courtney Ross on any world, and you had the version of you fell in real love with a real great guy and you really loved him more than anything and you can't have that you know and 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 you don't even know that it's literally self-sabotage at this point but like there's you know there's a version of you who can do everything you do but better and still can't have the one thing you have you know like there's a version of Excalibur, where the main character is is a version of Courtney Ross, mm-hmm. and it's also about her trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing, and that is an intentional bookend I'm trying to do, you know. And it's not, is it totally laid out there on the page? Maybe not now, maybe not yet, maybe. And and if you know, I don't want to spoil anything for you. If, if you're listening to me talk and you're like, I don't think that's there at all. Cool, go go get something else out of the book, or don't. Go nuts. But for me, like, I think there's a version of Saturnine's story where she just, it doesn't matter how good she is because of who she is. She can't have what she wants. And I think that Betsy is suffering that. And I think the difference between a hero and a villain is how you respond to that moment of hopelessness. And right now at the end of Ten of Swords, both Betsy and Saturnine are pretty hopeless. Yeah. And that's on purpose because I think that's fun. 
where are we going to go from there? They both get everything they wanted, but not what they needed. That's right. Betsy is the Captain Britain now and forever. Betsy is now Captain Britain forevermore. But where is she? And she doesn't have her relationships, and and, her right. home, her friends, her family doesn't have any of that. Yeah. And Saturnine has, you know, she won. She won, but she can never have the man she loves. That's right. And that's meant to be. Um, and another part of this is that it, women don't get these arcs a lot as characters or as writers. And getting to do two of them in one book is really important to me. Yeah. Like, women don't get to be, like, imperfect. And and I don't know. Like, to me, that's a big part of it. I... I I do not have interest in writing characters that don't fail. I don't think I've ever written anything that wasn't just full of L's. And I don't know. And maybe, and it's not be, because I like, you know, it's, it's some writer who's like, I like making characters suffer. He, he, I'm not really that sort of person. It's more like, uh, I just think that losing is a really vulnerable thing. And I think it brings out really wild stuff in people. Absolutely. I think losing is more motivating than winning. That's for sure. <laughs> What's nice about this character is that because she has always been more in the background, apart from the initial run of Captain Britain, she really has been a supporting character. There is something really rewarding about after almost 40 years, getting to really dig into who she is as a person and what motivates her and what drives her as a human being especially now that she has achieved the stuff that we were always told was all she wanted to achieve sort of like all right now what and i think that she and betsy are positioned now i mean i've commented a couple times on how they're very similar women they are and and that that is that was something that really really kept sticking out to me when i was building my run is that to me it felt like that glaring obvious thing that had never really been super explored after, you know, we decided that Captain Britain was going to be Betsy, and I was like, okay, well, what is Betsy's Captain Britain story? The Saturnine of it was just so obvious to me because they are just so similar. And they don't they don't have a lot of story together, but it was just such fertile ground for me. I mean, even in a really personal way, right? Like your brother's bitchy girlfriend who, like, you try yeah. to avoid... But, like, she is the worst part of his life and is always causing him problems. There's relatability there. There's, there's like, uh, and I don't know. I don't, I, maybe why my characters take L so much is because to me, I'm like, that's, you know, it's not stuff we show nakedly a lot to people. And I'm a pretty private person. But, like, the exchange for that is, like, I'm totally fine with, like, opening up all of my greatest like miserable feelings of shame and defeat on the page so long as I can do it like anonymously behind a character <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's valuable I mean we have a fucking president who can't even admit he loses like not anymore thankfully soon enough thank god yeah yeah <laughs> more champagne for that yeah truly cheers L'chaim. I think losing is important and I think women getting to lose is important you know we talk about the glass ceiling and like I mean this is you know if you've ever taken a women's studies 101 class you learn about you know the glass precipice the idea that women are mm -hmm. are set up to fail um because then you can point to them and say see they failed right that's why we don't let women do this you know is the is the inherent language so for me like a story the fact that i've basically gotten to write you know at this point 
you know, 15, well, I've written at this point 19 issues of Excalibur, but you know, you've read 15 of them. And, um, you know, the, 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 the story so far is, uh, it's a lot of things and a lot of them are more fun than this, but in a very real way, it's a story about female failure and a lot of people can't hang with that. And I recognize that, but it is super important to me <laughs> to tell a story about female failure, <laughs> public, embarrassing, ugly, heartbreaking female failure, not just failing at winning or failing at winning the fight, but like failing to be the person you want to be failing to be who people expect you to be. And I think Betsy's a really good character to, explore that with because first of all she has always been obsessed with winning she has yes. always been competitive and she's always been you know her upbringing and everything she was always very pampered i told leah and vita the other day when we were talking that i was like i think um the other x-men writers if you're listening and you don't know who they are i was saying i was like i love that wolverine's tagline also works really well for betsy like she's the best she is at what she does but what she does isn't very nice <laughs> <laughs> right I mean, I, I think that she was someone who always was given what she asked for when she was young. And her story as an X-Man has often been about things going pear-shaped and her not knowing what she should do, but rising to the occasion, making the best of a bad hand she gets dealt. And the way that she does that is by becoming the person she thinks she's supposed yes. to be. She knows how to earn things she has been told she doesn't. Right. And so, like, her initial arc as a new character in X-Men in Mutant Massacre is that Wolverine and the others are just sort of like, what is this prissy, like, pod? What is her deal? Yes. What is her deal? She needs to stay out of our business. And then she goes out of her way in a very ostentatious but very heroic way to prove by taking on Sabretooth by herself with no yes. real combat training, yeah, that, that issue rules, so that good. she is worthy. And when Wolverine says, you know what, I think we should invite her to join the X-Men, she's already got a costume prepared, which I think is a very telling, but she knows they're going to ask. Right. And when she becomes Kanon, she fully embraces, all right, this is who I am now. I'm going to be this warrior in the darkness this stealth ninja i'm gonna be this person that people want me to be and now they're like you're captain britain she's like okay well then i will be the upstanding hero that i always knew i was supposed to be but have been told except she's not very good at so long right yeah (laughs) that i was sneaky that i was distrustful that i'm bad that I was, yeah, that, like, the X-Men let me in after I proved how good I was. Like, does everyone else have to prove they're a good guy? Y'all got plenty of people who aren't good guys. <laughs> like, Right. And it just feels like the rules are so different for her, you know? Like, I, I, I remember just, like, reading her, her the, the you know, like, Uncanny 213, that whole, that whole era where, like, she starts working with them. Like, that whole era of Uncanny just feels like, like... I I have never and like okay first of all I'm just gonna say flat out put this shit to bed I love Betsy Brown (laughs) (laughs) I love her and part of my love for her comes from the fact that when I you know read the parts where she first comes and meets the X-Men they are so hard on her like I don't feel like everyone else it's like you know well you seem trustworthy come along 
It's a lot like how they treat Emma in Morrison. And those issues do such a good job. And it's like, they don't even ignore it, you know? I don't, I don't feel like it's one of those things that, oh, it happened on the panel, but, but like, people, you know, like it, it really does happen on panel. You get whole issues of her, you know, sitting there at, at the at Cerebro in tears, you know? Like, she wants to be part of these people so badly. And her complaint is always, all they can see is my exterior. All they can see is the princess die. The model, the, the rich girl. That's the, right. The and rich so girl the... model from whose father is a lord and like all yes. of that stuff. And that's part of why being transformed into Kanon is so liberating for her because she yes. becomes someone else. And part of why I think becoming Captain Britain has been difficult for her because it's all the expectations she placed on herself back in the 80s coming rocketing all down on her at once and then the second she starts to get her footing on it brian's like okay i'll take it back now she's like wait 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 wait. and not only just i'll take it back now but i'll take it back now because we both know you're not supposed to do it right you know you would have taken the sword but we've never she was never offered the test no she wasn't no one's ever offered it to her no no one, yeah, it, it's the assumption has been that she would always, everyone has always assumed she would fail, so she has never been offered the test. That is right. a, that is a Betsy Hallmark, I think. <laughs> like, yeah. that is a part of her character. And, and, and look, everyone doesn't read her this way. Some people read her and they're like, she's a hero, she was misunderstood, some horrible stuff happened to her, and she's stayed a hero throughout. That's a valid read of the character. Um, as a writer, as someone that has to take her on a journey, you've got to give her something else. And I think that challenging her with someone a lot like her is the only reason to get her a villain that she would really, like, struggle with. Yeah. People who come at Betsy, like, it's not that nobody can get her. It's that people get her all the time and she doesn't care. She comes back. She's a fighter one way or another. She's like, take my eyes, switch my body, kill me. I don't care. Like... I'll come back. I'll deal with it. Yeah. And like, she's a survivor. You can't kill me. Yeah. Um, and survivors, I think there's a lot of survivors in comics that are shown. We get that narrative of always it being an easy road to, to survival. And I guess for me, it was important for me to show that it's not. And maybe that's because I'm a woman. Uh, like, it was really important to me to not do the version of it where... She's just strong because we, the reader, know she's strong. There's this desire for strong female characters who are infallible. You're resisting that impulse to make her, like, because it is, there's always going to be people who go, oh, this is like PC, whatever, like to make the sister Captain Britain now. And, and look, like that media, the existence of that media, everyone deserves mindless feel-good media. Like, like, no shame. Not everything with girls in it has to be a great girl power story. And, like, that's just, I guess that's what I write, you know? Like, I, and not just women. Like, I wrote, you know, I wrote a whole book about Thanos where everyone was like, uh, why does Thanos have real bad depression? And I'm like, because in other stories he doesn't, and I think he should. Like, <laughs> Right. I think that what you say about a villain for Betsy is really true because I love Spiral. And I think that Spiral is a compelling sort of arch enemy for Betsy in some ways because of their history together. But the problem with Spiral is that Spiral doesn't care. Well, not everyone that pisses me off challenges me emotionally, right? Spiral's a lot of fun right, for a like, fight, but she's not going to, like, get to Betsy's core. Betsy's going to kick her ass. Right, and, like, because Spiral be is, like, Spiral is more fey than anything on other worlds. 
Like she's, <laughs> she's so too, weird. <laughs> she's too broken from all of the torture she Mojo, went through. Mojo, yeah. Wayward, yeah. She's not like Jamie that way, actually. That, like, her brain sure. just doesn't work the way that regular people's does anymore. And she's also outside of time and space most of the time. So everything she does is just sort of play. Saturnine is a really effective foil for Betsy for two reasons. One is that she's not evil. She's not a villain in that sense. Like I said, yeah, there's a version of Excalibur that is about, that reads really the same as Betsy Braddock's struggles to exist in the other world. That's Courtney Ross and her struggles to become right Saturnine, Earth Nine. Like that's, there's a version of this story that's more or less the same story about a flawed girl who really wants shit, who's screwing up all the time. <laughs> I would love if the reveal was that her name on Earth-9 was Courtney Ross and that Opaluna Saturnine is something she made up to sound fancy on other worlds. Well, that would be everything's something someone made up. <laughs> of course, of course. But I, I think that mean. would be fun. Because as retcons go, I think that the retcon that Courtney is Saturnine on Earth-616 is one of the best. I agree. And most seamless ever done. And it helps that Claremont had created Courtney back in the 70s and was very familiar with the character. But what he does in the first five issues of Excalibur, where he brings Courtney back, makes the reader love Courtney. Like, she is a Claremont dame in the most, yeah. you know, feisty tradition. Sure is. And is so fun, is so smart, is perfect for Brian, which is troubling if you are invested in him and Megan. But, you know, him and Megan don't really makes sense early in Excalibur. Sure. That's a relationship that takes time to develop. Which is why I love it so much now. Same. I love Like, I Brian really love Brian and Megan together. I, I can't go the whole Saturnine episode without saying that I really love Brian and Megan together. I think Same. They're, Absolutely. I think they're really sexy. I think they're super into each other. Like, I, I think they're gorgeous. But Megan had a lot of growing up to do she, exactly that relationship I, felt equal. If if Luke Cage and Jessica Jones had gotten married in Alias, you'd be like, the fuck is this? You know? Like, right. like that relationship became good because it aged over time. No, there's a reason that the final issue of Excalibur is that wedding. Yeah. Because it feels like those 125 issues, you earned that. I would be lying if I didn't have friends who were married and had kids right now who were people that knew each other since they were 15 and, like, nobody ever thought about them dating. And then one day... And now they're, like, married and they have kids and they love each other. And it's like, of course they do. Like, right. of course that makes sense. But, yeah, when Claremont brings Courtney back in Excalibur and makes her beautiful, brilliant, perfect for Brian. Claremont and, and, and Alan Davis's art don't hurt either. Well, Alan Davis's art is stunning yeah. from start to finish. But And then brutally murders her. Yes, and that's what I was going to say. Like, like, Claremont is so, so good about this. And this is something that, like, I really try to do in my own work, too, is, like, he makes the lovable stuff lovable dis- like there are times where you love stuff where you you in like in a in a guilty pleasure way like like he's able to serve you a slice of cake and you know it it's cake and you know it's going to blow up at some point but you don't care you eat it anyway you're like gosh well sat urine offers kitty cake very literally at one point i'll refrain from making lewd commentary and just drink my champagne <laughs> But I mean, I think that's true. And I think that what's interesting about Courtney Ross is that when you look at her by herself out of context, you could think of her as sort of this woman in refrigerators character where the superhero's girlfriend gets killed. 
but it's a lot more complicated than that. Like she is Brian's Gwen Stacy in some respects, but Brian doesn't find out she's dead for like 50 issues because Satyr 9 replaces her. Right. And eventually after House of M, Satyr 9 claims she is the real Courtney restored to life and part of him believes her. And so it works because it's not really a story about Brian. What impacts the reader is that the reader cares about Courtney immediately. Yes. And then the reader knows Courtney's been murdered, but Brian doesn't know. And for the next 40 issues, you watch Courtney, quote unquote, interacting with all of these other characters. And you are repulsed because you know it's a lie. that it's an evil Nazi version of her that has taken her place is sleeping with Brian under false pretenses. And he's cheating on Megan, by the way. So that's already, like, that's wild to have that in your superhero book to begin with. And she's, like, becoming this mentor to Kitty. And every now and then in those issues, it's easy to forget that it's not really Courtney. Right. And she'll have some really nice scene where she's really supportive with Kitty or Brian. And you're just like, Courtney's so great. Then you're like, wait, that's not Courtney. That's evil Courtney. On the topic of Brian doing stuff that might upset Megan, I just have to say, um, when R.B. Silva turned in those Excalibur 13 pages of uh, Brian and Saturnine, like, making out, I was, like, screaming. (laughs) They're really good pages. (laughs) They're so beautiful. Like, I I was, like, Annalise, one of the editors, I was, like, this is, like, like, please, God, let us print this. Like, it's so, I was, like, is this too sexy? Are we allowed to do this? Oh. Well, and what I love about it is that, like, Megan hated Saturnine long before she understood that Saturnine was into Brian. Mm -hmm. Long before she had any idea Saturnine and Courtney Ross were the same person. Long before any of that, she just, like, has always been very put out by Saturnine. She's like, I don't like this bitch. Yep. She's like, that silver-haired cow. Yeah. Not a fan. Day one. She's not right. I'm very excited to see Megan come in, because obviously the December solicit, she's around. Yeah, I mean, well... Look, her husband is Captain Avalon, so... Yeah, it's the time to be on Avalon, right? That's right. Um, I mean, and that also, like, so... I don't know. I don't want to show my hand too much. But I, I like, my, my theory is that Megan's always disliked Saturnine because Megan is, like, an otherworld creature. And Yeah, no, I think she clearly is Faye in some sense. She's always been subconsciously aware of every version of her. Like, I think that's, like, a, a Megan thing. I'm really excited to hear you say that because I've been really hoping with the expansion of Otherworld that we would see Megan discover more about her yeah. heritage. I really, I really, really love Megan. You're also the first writer with Romany heritage to write Megan, which I think is cool. You know, that is cool, but I think Megan and I could not be more different uh, <laughs> as a like as when it sure. comes to groups that use that word. Um, she's about from as far west as they come, and I think I'm about from as far east, but. <laughs> Oh, I didn't, I didn't, yeah, no, she's a Roman for sure. Yeah, she's, yeah. um, like, an English. Although there's an issue of Captain Britain that implies she's Rooster Roma, because there's the whole thing with Baba Yaga, but it doesn't make any sense. I feel, yeah, I feel like that was the result of, like, some odd research. But, Someone didn't I mean, do the research or something, right? Yeah. I don't, like, and I, and I say this a lot, like, I don't, I don't, like, I'm not someone who would myself be like, ah, yes, I, I feel empowered to speak on 
Romani culture or heritage. I'm just, I'm lucky enough to have spoken with some other people who I share a background with. And, and most of the ones I've spoken to are, are very, very um, wonderful and welcoming and excited to talk to people who are interested in learning about our heritage. So it's not anything that I was like raised in, but I just think it's a cool element. It is interesting. Yeah. Because that part of her character hasn't really been explored outside of the like tragically grew up in a caravan of it all. Right. Well, and I've, I've, you know, I talk a lot about the, um, my, so when we talk about superhero powers, um, this is kind of becoming like a Betsy and Megan episode. I realize I'm so sorry. That's normal. <laughs> and I expected that. And it's fine. But you know, when we talk about, uh, okay, like this is the story I always tell people, or this is the, 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 the example I always give people about superhero powers is when people really believed that Hephaestus was making the volcano explode, it didn't undo the fact that it was exploding for other reasons. Right. So like, is Megan, from the other world or does she have an X gene like por que no los dos like it's both like it's right it's... yeah well Betsy has both so why not yes and so does Pixie from uh, Academy N mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there are a couple characters you do and I, I think I think that's that's right I mean at least for me that's the I think people are I don't know I've never understood the need to nail down if it's one or the other I think most people are multitudes in most things mm-hmm. Well, I think with Megan, it's just that different writers seem to have different takes, and so fans have always been a little confused. Sure, yeah. So I'm, I think that clarity on that would be cool. I mean, I definitely think that it would make sense for Captain Avalon's wife to be a creature of Avalon. I agree. <laughs> I'm just really excited for more Megan, because I love her. I was nervous about Brian going into this event, but I was like, T loves Brian too much. And then I was like, wait, people love to kill characters they love. That I was nervous again, but I'm glad that they both made it out. You know, I, I want I want people to be scared for the Braddocks because that's fun for me. If you all are scared for them, but <laughs> but <laughs> um, you know, one of the driving forces of Excalibur as a book is is what I call the Braddock Triangle, which is the family relationship between Jamie, Betsy, and Brian. I want more of Megan and Betsy's relationship because we've never really gotten to see very much of it. They've only interacted like four or five times on panel. I'm nodding. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a book about that. You might like it. Uh- <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited. I think that Saturnine on some level is the fourth point to a square with those characters because she is betsy's foil she is brian's what might have been she's megan's rival for brian's heart she sort of completes that in the same way that jamie who has never been as major a character as brian and betsy forms a really appealing triangle with the two of them which is something i thought excalibur 13 which as i've told you is my favorite braddock family story Maybe ever. Thank you. I'm very, very proud of that issue. One of my favorite parts is when Betsy's in the dungeon and she's not Captain Britain and she's trying to focus her energies and the butterfly is sort of almost appearing on the sides of her head. There's been a lot of controversy about the butterfly. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you can say about Betsy not having that power signature at the moment? No. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. I'll be honest, uh, people haven't been super nice to me about it. Do I want to speak on the butterfly controversy? Okay, no, no, no. I will. I'll speak on it. 
I've talked a lot about how this story is about like loss and failing and mistakes and like starting from a bad place and being in a bad place. Here's the really, really, um, and look, this isn't, this isn't like canon that belongs in a wiki, but this is like just a thought experiment. It makes sense that when you split up with someone with whom you've lived for a long time, that you should get all your stuff back and they should get all their stuff back. That doesn't always happen. And like Betsy in a very real way split up with someone she lived with for a very long time. Right. (laughs) And maybe when she was heading out in a rush, she forgot some things that were really important to her. It is not an accident. It is not a, marketing thing the feeling of loss you're experiencing when you see her without it is on purpose that's all i'll say about that that's what i thought and i just thought it would be nice to give you an opportunity to articulate that perhaps yeah no thank you for that what's interesting is that Conan isn't using it either she just uses the knife right well and, and it's not you know okay to, like to continue the metaphor I've lost things in a breakup before that I know that that ex probably had no idea that they even had. To them, it was <laughs> to them it was like a t-shirt that like got shoved in the back of their closet, and they'll like do spring cleaning and do laundry and be like, "I don't like this band. Who the fuck is this shirt belong to?" And right. Meanwhile, I'm like my cure shirt. Right. Like, <laughs> um. And, and I mean, that to me, that's, um, that's what it's meant to be. It's like, it's a, a, you lost part of yourself somewhere and you don't know where. I've said to people when they've asked me what I think about that, I'm like, I think it will come back eventually. And when it comes back, it will be for a reason. I think that the fact that she doesn't have it right now is clearly a character beat that you should. Right. I just think people are impatient. Well, and I think, I think that I want people to feel that way. You know, like if, if you are a Betsy fan and you feel like if you lived on Krakoa and you were her friend, you would go to her and you would be like, where's your butterfly? You're not, where's you're, the butterfly? You're not yeah. yourself without it. Like, right. Good. Like that's good feeling for us to have because she hasn't quite been herself. Right. Yeah. Like I, I agree. Like I love Betsy so much. You know, I, I, I don't put you guys through anything that I don't want to go through myself. Right. <laughs> you know, same with Saturday night. It's like, I, the stories that I write are not stories to punish people or to punish fans or to punish characters. I, I write, um, you know, in the middle of a pandemic alone in my house, (laughs) Um, I'm not doing this because I don't love it. I'm taking these characters through the journey that I think is the right one, even if it's not the easiest. And, and the feeling i'm really honored that people are so invested in her journey because it's a really engrossing and scary thing to be concerned for someone you love and and i don't play with that lightly i do it because i think it's powerful and i think it's important for us to have things that i think all right i love horror movies right i love horror movies i watch 31 of them every october with my husband um i love i mean i've written horror comics i love being scared i 
the whole rest of the year when I'm not watching horror movies, I'm reading true crime and listening to podcasts. I, I just love the feeling of, of, of being thrilled and being unsure. And that's why I write the kind of stories I write is because like, I love to really, really, really not believe something is going to work before it works. Like I want to be scared shitless when I read a story. I want to believe there is no way out and that there is no hope at all. And I get that that isn't everyone's thing. <laughs> um, and it's like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be like a grimdark Snyderverse girl. I just, you know, the world can be a hopeless place, but I really do believe it is a good one. And so I want you to feel the most scared fear before you get the highest high. Because to me, that's how you know that that's real and that's possible. You know, that's what a hero is, is like... Like, if you're someone who's reading my Excalibur run and there's parts of it where you're like, I'm tired of this sad sack, purple haired girl, but then I can get later out of you like a fist in the air issue where you're pleased with her again. Like, that's fine. You like, I will totally take you being mad at me if you're with me at the end. (laughs) I love storytelling. I think it's the most powerful way we have to connect with people. And I don't take it lightly that it's my job. I would agree. That's why I do what I do. Yeah. Art is really important to my like facilitating it, but Everyone's a critic, so no, you know. (laughs) It's good, though. Part of what's wonderful about these characters in this world is that people are so invested that every decision you make is going to have a reaction. Right. Like, I I am aware that I write serials. Part of why I got into comics is because I loved the idea of writing serials. You know, comics are one of the few places that you can tell a serial by yourself. Like... So mm-hmm. much serial storytelling now is like TV and stuff. And there are podcasts that people do amazingly, but I don't have the audio skills for that. Um, but, you know, the idea, I, I grew up reading a lot of old sci-fi um, stuff that was like mm-hmm. released like month by month or week by week in like science fiction magazines. Like I got really into short stories. Ray Bradbury is one of my favorite authors. Um, I, so I, I grew up on that. And so part of when I started reading comics, part of the appeal was that it was chapters. I've always preferred reading to watching. I love film. I love television. But I've always preferred a book to a movie or a magazine article to, well, I don't know, a documentary might be my favorite thing. But I really love a book. I love reading. And I love just I'm uh, the feeling of getting a new book or a new chapter of something. I mean, when I was a teenager and I read fan fiction, I would, like, wait for my favorite blogs yeah, to update. So I could go, update. like devour the next chapter and then spend the whole next week thinking about it um i really love that and uh i think one of just random shout out to someone who i think is doing it in a really creative way is the sports writer john boyce uh did a series called uh 200,020 this year also did yeah. a series called 17776 yeah before. that's what i remember um absolutely brilliant person doing uh a kind of like digital serialized storytelling like nothing i've ever seen um but i'm really inspired by that and i write comics not just because i of the characters i write comics because of the media the medium of it the the Mm -hmm. way in which it's released so uh so yeah i i write um you know i write for that insecurity i know that i'm creating that insecurity in people and i'm doing it on purpose but at the same time i'm also aware of the fact that this thing is hopefully going to exist in trade form on shelves forever so it has to be a good story like right. that too so i'm walking this line of writing things that don't pay off for a year and a half uh <laughs> well and covid didn't help i mean you were stuck on that alternate captain britain's story for like months on couldn't end, have been a worse time to, to get be, a skit i know it's supposed to be like a fun throwaway issue and then people spend six months being like what the fuck did you do 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was like, it's fine. I'm, I'm Grant Morrison. I'm going to stick the landing. I'm not skilled as Grant Morrison. They are an incredible storyteller. Um, but I'm, 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 there's someone I'm very inspired by. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Long story short, I live for that uncertainty and I realize that I court it. So I do not hold it against any of you guys listening or anyone in general who is frustrated with that insecurity and is emotionally living with it. Uh, that's, that's art, baby. Like that's, <laughs> uh, That feeling is, is part of it. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not playing games with your heart, but you know, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from my wonderful mentor and co-writer and friend, Jonathan Hickman, uh, for a long time, I literally wrote on a post-it note and stuck to my monitor in my old office was don't get between them and the story, which means like, let people, you know, when you read a comic, that's you in the page, the voices in your head, the way it plays out, isn't going to be like, it's going to be for anyone else. Sometimes you find people for whom it's very similar. Like, for example, like Connor and I, you know, you're, you and I are people. Yeah, we vibe. Who, we vibe. We often get the same things from a story. We're often looking for the same things in a story. And not everyone's the same, but it's very important for me to not get in between you and the story. If you read my run of Excalibur and you believe that Betsy is a pretender and that is Brian's job, and this should be what motivates him to come back and cut his sister's head off, whatever. Like, okay, that's the narrative that's important to you. I'm not going to get between that. Like, if you ask me to get between it and to talk to you about it as a friend or something, that's, that's fun. That's free time. That's what we do as buddies or as people that listen to comics podcasts, right? We're interested in other takes, but as a writer, I have a responsibility to not force my take on you. My take is there on the page. My take is there in the text and that's where it ends. You get to take whatever you want from the story and I have to live with that. And I, and sure. Uh, I have been writing comics for six years, seven years now, and I've seen seven years now. Oh, my God. Uh, and <laughs> I've seen wild takes um, in good faith and bad of all sorts of things I've written. And all I can say is I have the honor to get into your head. Like, I, Right. I mean, that's part of being read, right? Like, you can't. That's, that's art. Like you said, that's art, baby. Like, you can't put art out into the world. And, and listen. I think that you have a very mature attitude on that level. I think there are a lot of writers who have difficulty allowing for that mm-hmm. and who feel the need to argue with people or feel the need to Couldn't defend themselves. Will never be me. You'll know it's ha- you'll know I'm hacked if I start arguing with you about a take. <laughs> like I just think that it's it's a smarter play just like what you do and I find I think it it must be hard. It would be hard for me a little bit. Not to say, no, that's not what I meant or whatever. But I think that you have the courage of your convictions and you know that when Excalibur 20 or whatever, 30, 40 comes out, people will understand what you were doing. It's also really important as a writer to have a place for thoughtful feedback on your work that is not public and that is with people that matter to you, you know? Absolutely. It's important to me that there are people like you or people in the X office or personal friends I have who are very not online people, but are X-Men comic buyers who have been my friends for years and are now just like wild that I'm buying your books because I like the X-Men, you know? Yeah. 
because it is wild. It's important for me to have places where I can go and people say, I'm a fan of yours and I know what you're doing and I like it. Um, because, you know, we all need to have somewhere where we go and are told we're good at our job. <laughs> I think that's a pretty uh, human desire. But no, I mean, I, I don't. It's like it's less that I do it because I'm trying to be like a snob and a bigger person and more because I just think that Jonathan's advice was so good. And that like, I think it's yeah. cool that people get fired up about what I do. I don't do I think I, I, not that I'm like, I'm trying to piss people off and make the fans mad. It's like, I just think it's neat that like, as humans, we have the capacity to get so intense about the stories of what right and wrong are. Like, mm-hmm. I just think it's neat. <laughs> it is neat. That might be a good moment to pause to talk about a woman who is very good at her job, but always has people questioning how good at her job she is, which is the Omniversal Magistrates of Luna We've Saturn gotten a little Life. off topic, I realize. We have, but that's fine. That's what this podcast is all about, and we're going to get back on topic, and it's going to be great, and we're also going to do more tangents, because that is, again, how this podcast works. How we do. Discussing the X-Men works, because it is a vast, sprawling world, and I tend to view the character that's the focus of each episode to be more of a jumping off point for a general discussion. Uh, but the character file is all theirs. And this character file is going to cover Opal Luna Saturnine. It is also going to cover Opal Luna Saturnine, Courtney Ross, Satmine, Anjali, the Queen Mother, Saturnine. There's a lot of Saturnines to keep straight, and I will do my best to explain to you who they all are. And then we will return for more with Teeny Howard on Saturnine and Excalibur and Ten of Swords. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Opaluna Saturnine, her royal Wyness, Omniversal Magistrix, is a long-running supporting character most closely associated with Captain Britain and Excalibur. Introduced in 1981 in the critically acclaimed relaunch of Marvel UK's Captain Britain by Dave Thorpe and Alan Davis, and further developed by Davis in collaboration with Alan Moore, Jamie Delano, and Chris Claremont, she is introduced as a scheming interdimensional bureaucrat, a sort of middle manager of the Omniverse. But she has recently ascended to the throne of all other worlds, and become one of the most important and powerful figures in the Marvel Comics cosmology. A retcon in the late 80s establishes that Saturnine is the alternate reality counterpart of an earlier character, Brian Braddock's college girlfriend, Courtney Ross, and to understand the full story, it's important to start with her. Created by Chris Claremont and Herb Tramp, Courtney Ross first appears in 1976's Captain Britain No. 3, one of the earliest original stories at the Marvel UK imprint. A beautiful young woman with auburn hair, born to a wealthy family, she is one of Brian's classmates at Thames University and she serves the fairly standard role of superhero's love interest. She's unaware of Brian's secret life as Captain Britain, but proves a plucky and resourceful young woman, endangering herself and charging into battle on multiple occasions to try to help the hero. After the first Captain Britain title was cancelled, Brian's adventures became a backup feature in a book called Super Spider-Man and Captain Britain that reprinted Spider-Man stories for the UK market. Courtney features in a pair of memorable stories in this period, in the first, the Thames University students journey to Loch Ness to try and prove the existence of the lake's famous monster, which turns out to be an alien spacecraft. In the second, Courtney's aristocrat friend Lord Kemp invites her to his castle for the weekend, but he turns out to be a vampire werewolf serial killer who wants to make Courtney his bride. Don't worry about it. Captain Britain rescues her from both threats, but she remains unaware he's actually Brian. That's apparently changed by the time of Captain Britain's American debut. 
1978's Marvel Team-Up 65 and 66 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, in which Courtney travels with Brian to the States when he's studying abroad. She ends up kidnapped by the supervillain Arcade, an assassin who uses a customized amusement park called Murder World to kill his victims. Brian and Spider-Man rescue her, and she returns with her love to England. Shortly afterward, Brian disappears for a few years and is believed dead. This leads into the 1981 relaunch of Captain Britain, in which Courtney is absent. Saturnine debuts in December 1981's In Support of Darwin by writer Dave Thorpe and artist Alan Davis, the fourth part of the new Captain Britain serial in the Marvel UK anthology book Marvel Superheroes. Brian Braddock and his new sidekick, the otherworld elf Jackdaw, find themselves transported to a fascist London on a dystopian alternate Earth, which will come to be known in later stories as Earth-238. There they stop a robbery by the villain Mad Jim Jaspers and his crazy gang, only to be apprehended by the avant-garde, Saturnine's enforcers. A statuesque and elegant woman with silvery platinum blonde hair, Saturnine introduces herself as a representative of the Dimensional Development Court, and explains to Brian that Earth-238 is less evolved than it should be. Its stagnation is holding back the entire multiverse, and she plans to jumpstart societal progress using an intellect-promoting evolutionary fluid, which Brian helps her successfully spread to the populace. Saturnine and Brian toast to their success, but between issues, Dave Thorpe was pulled from the book and replaced by Alan Moore, who pivoted the narrative in a darker direction. In the story A Crooked World, Mad Jim Jaspers is revealed to be a reality-warping mutant of near-omnipotent power, who unleashes chaos on the entire world. Saturnine and her avant-garde abandon Captain Britain in their haste to escape from Earth-238, and Jackdaw is brutally slain by the Fury, an android Jaspers is designed to kill superheroes. Also murdered is Dimples, Saturnine's doting assistant, who had been left behind. The Fury then kills Captain Britain, forcing his patrons Merlin and Roma, the omniversal guardians who rule over Otherworld, the space between realities, to resurrect him and return him to his proper universe. The Captain Britain serial then moved to the new Marvel UK book, The Daredevils, and Saturnine next appears in June 1983 as issue 6 in a story called Judgment Day. Here, Moore and Davis introduce the Captain Britain Corps, establishing in a retcon that, unbeknownst to Brian, he has actually been simply one member of a large organization safeguarding the boundaries of infinite realities. Brian's Earth, the main Marvel Universe, is Earth-616. Saturnine hires a group of interdimensional mercenaries called the Special Executive to kidnap Brian and bring him to the Dimensional Development Court in Otherworld, where he learns that she has been stripped of her position as Omniversal Magistrix and imprisoned for her failure on Earth-238. Saturnine expects Brian to be delighted by her suffering, given that she had abandoned him and allowed Jackdaw to be killed, but Brian wipes away her tears and assures her he derives no pleasure from seeing her brought low. He agrees to serve as a character witness at her trial before the Supreme Omniversal Tribunal, which is overseen by her successor, Omniversal Magister Mandragon. Mandragon quickly shows he has no intent of giving his predecessor, here identified for the first time by her full name, Opal Luna Saturnine, a fair hearing. Over Brian's objection, Mandragon obliterates the entire universe of Earth-238 to prevent the reality cancer of Jim Jasper's power from infecting other realities, and also to eliminate all evidence of Saturnine's innocence. He then sentences Saturnine to death, but she is rescued by Brian and the special executive, who flee Otherworld with Saturnine in tow for Earth-616. There they set up a base of operations at Braddock Manor, the home Brian shares with his twin sister Betsy, a telepathic secret agent. Unbeknownst to anyone, the Fury has survived the destruction of Earth-238 and follows Brian's trail to Earth-616. Brian and Saturnine meet Linda McQuillan, aka Captain UK, the other survivor of Earth-238, where she was her world's representative on the Captain Britain Corps. She fled to Earth-616 when the Fury murdered her husband and all the other superheroes, and has been hiding out there ever since, 
But now the Jim Jaspers of 616 is becoming politically prominent, and Linda believes what happened to her world is about to happen to Brian's. When the Fury arrives, it tries to kill Linda, leaving her nearly catatonic, her post-traumatic stress overwhelming her, and tears through the special executive, who depart the planet to mourn their dead and lick their wounds. Jim Jaspers of Earth 616 is successfully elected Prime Minister, and proves even more powerful than the one from Earth 238. In the iconic Jaspers Warp storyline, Moore's final arc on Captain Britain, Jaspers alters reality into a dystopian nightmare, rounding up superhumans and putting them into concentration camps. Saturnine, powerless and without authority after losing her position on Otherworld, does her best to help Brian and Betsy resist the authoritarian government. Brian wonders at the obvious chemistry between himself and Saturnine, but she assures him there's nothing there. She'll regret this later. Linda McQuillan, still in a fugue state after her reunion with the Fury, is nearly useless, much to Saturnine's frustration. When Jasper's enforcers murder Tom Lennox, Betsy's boyfriend, and take Betsy into custody, Saturnine implores Linda to help, but Linda refuses, running away in terror, and Saturnine runs after her. Catching up to her, Saturnine begins punching Linda across the face, excoriating her as a coward. With a bellow of shut up, Linda finally backhands Saturnine, sending her reeling to the floor with a dark bruise blossoming on her face. Saturnine looks up at her and smiles, pleased. Galvanized by Saturnine, Linda McQuillan dons her Captain UK uniform, and the two women follow after Captain Britain to try to help him. Meanwhile, facing off with Mad Jim Jaspers, Brian is dragged into a series of false realities. In the first, he's back with Jack Dawn Saturnine on Earth 238. In the second, he awakens in a hospital to discover Courtney Ross, who claims to be his wife, telling him he's been in a coma since the accident on Darkmoor that turned him into Captain Britain. There was no connection between Saturnine and Courtney when this story was written, but in retrospect, it's a nice bit of synergy. Jaspers is only stopped by the arrival of the Fury, which longed to destroy its creator under Earth-238, but was prevented by its programming. This Jim Jaspers is not the same man, however, and the two nigh-omnipotent creatures begin a battle that shakes and shatters reality around them. Saturnine, watching with wide eyes, swears by the Zoroastrian god Mithras. The Fury apparently succeeds in destroying Jaspers, and while it is weakened, it still turns its baleful eye on the heroes. Brian tries to fight it, but he's losing, until Linda, mad with rage, attacks it and manages to tear it apart. In the aftermath, Saturnine takes a cell sample from Mad Jim Jasper's corpse. She, Brian, and Linda are immediately summoned to Otherworld by Roma, Saturnine's superior, who informs them that the Jasper's warp has killed her father Merlin, the Omniversal Guardian. They attend Merlin's funeral, where they are honored as heroes, and Saturnine is noted as Opaluna Saturnine of Earth-9. As her reward for helping to stop the reality cancer, Saturnine is sent to confront Mandragon by Roma. She demands he cede all power to her and reinstall her as Omniversal Magistrates, where she will use the cell sample she cultivated from Jasper's to create a monster and obliterate Mandragon's home reality. We leave her, with Mandragon literally licking her boots. Roma chuckles to our heroes, admiring Saturnine's flair for the dramatic, but assuring the two captains Britain that she made sure that Jasper's cell cultures were killed before Saturnine's experiments could commence. Saturnine herself does not appear for the rest of the 80s run of Captain Britain, but an alternate version of her plays a significant role in the 1985 Jamie Delano and Alan Davis relaunch of his solo title. The TechNet, a version of the special executive from hundreds of years earlier in their subjective timeline, don't worry about it, is hired by the evil Opal Boon Satyr 9, that's S-A-T hyphen Y-R hyphen the number 9, Saturnine's equivalent on Earth 794. Maastricht Satyr 9 is a fascist dictator who rules her version of the United Kingdom with an iron fist. Her consort is Byron Braddock, Captain Britain, Earth 794's counterpart to Brian Braddock, who is just as evil and sadistic as his mistress. 
Byron has fled Earth-794 after a conflict with Sector-9, and lands on Earth-616. He manages to defeat Brian in combat and switch costumes with him, convincing the Technet to take Brian with them by mistake. Brian awakes on Earth-794 and is seduced by Saturn 9 whom he takes to be Saturnine of Earth-9. He realizes his error the next day, when the Masterix presents him to her cheering subjects and she demands Bloodsport in his honor. Brian convinces the Technet to help him escape, infuriating Saturn 9 Meanwhile, on Earth-616, Byron Braddock assaults Betsy, attempting to rape her. He confesses he isn't her Brian, and when Betsy reads his mind, she sees the untold depravity he and Saturnine have indulged in as dictators on Earth-794. Enraged and violated, Betsy uses her telepathic powers to slay Byron in self-defense. It is the first time she has killed another human being. Brian arrives home just in time to see the smoking corpse of his doppelganger and attempt to comfort his sister, who understandably needs a moment before she can be comfortable with him again. In the final issue of Captain Britain, Linda McQuillan meets with Roma, who explains that Earth-794 has no Captain Britain anymore after the death of Byron Braddock, and that its people need defending from Opal Loon Sector 9. Linda, without a world of her own any longer, agrees to take on this new mission. Chris Claremont, the writer of the earliest Captain Britain adventures, rescued Betsy, Brian, and Brian's girlfriend, Megan, from the now-canceled title. He quickly moved Betsy to the X-Men, where she became the superheroine Psylocke. And in 1988, he made Brian and Megan two of the founding members, alongside Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Rachel Summers, of the new group Excalibur, a British superhero team founded after the apparent death of the X-Men in the event Fall of the Mutants. In The Sword is Drawn, the special issue depicting the founding of Excalibur in advance of their ongoing series, Saturnine hires the Technet to apprehend Timestream anomaly Rachel Summers. Kitty Pride is awestruck by Saturnine's beauty when she sees the Technet's holographic image of her. The Technet fails in their mission, and Excalibur is formed after Rachel's rescue. The first five issues of Excalibur also reintroduce Courtney Ross, now the senior vice president of Fraser's Bank in London, where employees reverently call her the Ice Queen. She now has platinum blonde hair, and reveals to Brian that this is her natural color. In college, she dyed her hair auburn in the hope she'd be taken more seriously. Seeing her as a platinum blonde, Brian is startled to realize she is a dead ringer for Saturnine. In truth, she is Saturnine's counterpart on Earth-616, though neither Courtney nor Brian is aware of this. Brian and Courtney feel the chemistry between them returning immediately, and with Brian depressed over the apparent death of his sister Betsy, and unsure of his complicated romance with Megan, it's easy for them to fall into an emotional affair. Courtney becomes his therapeutic ear for problems he's having with Excalibur, and the two grow closer and closer until Courtney is kidnapped by their old enemy Arcade, and taken to Murder World. Showing a remarkable capacity for survival, Courtney outwits Arcade's traps and displays a hidden talent for stand-up comedy when she must make Murder World laugh or die. With Excalibur's help, she becomes the only normal human to actively escape from Murder World. She and Brian plan a romantic evening together to celebrate, but just before he arrives, she is accosted in her flat by a woman who looks exactly like her. The evil Saturnine, deposed from her rule of Earth-794, has reached Earth-616, thanks to a portal opened by the time-traveling robot Widget. Don't worry about it. And it didn't take her long to find her counterpart. Courtney is too shocked to react in time, and Saturnine disintegrates her with a laser weapon and takes her place. When Brian arrives, Saturnine seduces him into bed, and he drops the flowers he brought for Courtney onto the floor, right next to the charred outline Courtney left behind when she was immolated. As Courtney, Saturnine drives a wedge between Brian and Megan, and begins grooming young Kitty Pride, becoming her confidant. When Excalibur is sent traveling through realities on the cross-time caper, they meet a few other versions of Saturnine, like the scheming Queen Mother of England on Earth-1193, a powerful sorceress who recognizes something of herself in Kitty Pride, 
and the murderous seductive witch Anjali of Earth-1289. Meanwhile, back home on Earth-616, Satyr-9 hires the Technet to rescue Brian's older brother Jamie Braddock, a devil-may-care playboy turned human trafficking criminal turned insane reality-warping mutant from captivity in Africa. He begins working for her, using his abilities to help her seize control of the Vixen's organized crime ring. In Excalibur 24, in a very suggestive storyline, Satyr 9 as Courtney helps Kitty celebrate her 15th birthday, whining and dining her all over London and Paris via private jet, and there is a deep sexually flirtatious charge between them. Saturnine, meanwhile, angry at the chaos the cross-time caper has caused across the multiverse, draws the rest of Excalibur to other worlds. She reprograms the robot widget to allow Excalibur to return to their own Earth, and tells Brian he seems happy with Megan. He notes that she seems jealous, which she doesn't deny. She then knowingly allows the dangerous anomaly Rachel Summers to sneak past her with the rest of the group. She isn't seen again until after Claremont departed and Alan Davis took over writing duties on the book in addition to drawing it. In Excalibur 42, the TechNet again attempts to kidnap Rachel, and after another failure, Saturnine informs that their contract has been rescinded and they are exiled to Earth-616 indefinitely. From Excalibur 43 to Excalibur 46, interstitial segments introduce the reader to Princess Satine of Earth-148, lover of the world-displaced mutant hero Kailan, originally from Earth-616. This version of Saturnine is a righteous sorceress who is killed in battle trying to save her world from its Sorcerer Supreme, the evil Necrom. Meanwhile, Brian is dragged to Otherworld by the Captain Britain Corps after he has a physical altercation with Nightcrawler. This is the latest in a series of regulations Brian has broken as Captain Britain, and he is put on trial by the Corps. Linda McQuillan acts as his defense attorney, while Hauptmann England of the Nazi Earth prosecutes. When he loses his case, Brian is sentenced to death, but he is saved by Saturnine, who claims Roma has pardoned him. When a mysterious old man on Otherworld, actually Merlin, who got better, in disguise, helps Brian piece together recent events, he realizes that the TechNet was never intended to succeed in capturing Rachel. Saturnine sent them in order to bring Excalibur together in the first place. He barges into the Starlight Citadel to confront Roma, and Saturnine leaps to her mistress's defense with a machine gun. Brian disarms her easily, and Saturnine is... impressed. The arrival of Necrom on Earth-616 creates chaos across the multiverse, baffling Roma and Saturnine. Merlin reveals to his daughter that Necrom is of their own species and was once his teacher. Kailan helps Excalibur defeat Necrom, avenging Satnin. Rachel Summers destroys the evil sorcerer, and Megan destroys the energy matrix of Otherworld he sought to seize, also foiling Merlin's nefarious plans. Roma frees Excalibur from her service, accepting that without the energy matrix she will be less powerful than her father was. Meanwhile, the evil Satyr 9 and Jamie Braddock decide to make their move on Excalibur. At a party at Braddock Manor, Satyr 9 attends as Courtney and distracts the hosts, giving Jamie the opportunity to murder Excalibur's ally, Alison Stewart, and capture Excalibur. Satyr 9 reveals she had murdered and replaced Courtney, and brainwashes Brian into becoming her subservient love slave. Her spell is broken, however, when she orders him to harm Megan, and he breaks her conditioning. She and Jamie manage to escape, but Brian swears he will find her and avenge Courtney's murder. Chris Claremont uses Saturnine a couple times in his run on Fantastic Four in the late 90s, but honestly, don't worry about it. In the final issue of Excalibur, by Ben Robb, Saturnine attends the wedding of Brian and Megan, officiated by Roma, and clearly isn't enjoying herself during the ceremony. Privately, afterwards, she admits to Brian that she always thought they would end up together, and makes a move to seduce him, but he rebuffs her advances. Three years later, in the 2001 Excalibur miniseries, also by Ben Robb, Brian takes the throne of Otherworld and assumes Roma's place as Omniversal Guardian, 
upsetting Saturnine, who feels he does not deserve that position. When Claremont returned to Uncanny X-Men in 2004, over a decade after the wicked Saturnine's last appearance, a character calling herself Courtney Ross becomes the new white queen of the Hellfire Club and causes some trouble for the X-Men, particularly Betsy and Rachel Summers. This woman is presumably Satyr 9, resuming her roots from the early 90s, but she claims to be the real Courtney, resurrected by the uncontrolled reality-warping powers of the Scarlet Witch, which shortly thereafter trigger the company-wide House of M event. The House of M reality warp also resurrects Jim Jaspers on Otherworld, merging him with the Fury and creating a being of untold horrific power. Saturnine attempts to destroy Earth-616 to eliminate the Scarlet Witch and her growing reality cancer, but Brian stops her. Roma gives Brian 48 hours to solve the problem. In the end, Megan apparently sacrifices her life to seal the rift and save all creation. Don't worry, she gets back. The mysterious Courtney Ross, still claiming to be the genuine article, then appears as a recurring character in Chris Claremont's new Excalibur, which focuses on Brian Braddock returning to superheroics as an apparent widower. Courtney insists on helping the team, and Brian finds himself doubting his conviction that she's sat in her nine, and not truly the real Courtney restored to life. This plot was totally dropped when New Excalibur was cancelled, and Saturnine hasn't appeared since. Opal Luna Saturnine returns in the 2007 crossover event X-Men Die by the Sword, also by Chris Claremont, in which the entire Captain Britain Corps faces off against the merged Jasper's Fury creature born during the House of M reality war. Jasper's joins forces with Merlin to seek revenge on Roma and the Corps, and Saturnine is surprised when Roma shows fear and weakness. Roma is mortally wounded and forced to download her knowledge to the X-Man Sage's computer brain. Don't worry about it. Roma gets better eventually. Saturnine decides she wants to reform the core with Albion, an evil Brian Braddock, don't worry about it, in charge, and tells Brian he's relieved of his duties. But then in the Otherworld story arc of Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force five years later, Brian and Megan are back on the throne of Otherworld somehow. Brian drags Betsy to Otherworld to help in his war with a cosmic entity called the Goat, who threatens to cause a new reality cancer and is devastating the Captain Britain Corps, which Merlin, of all people, has apparently reconstituted with the help of a reformed and now heroic Jamie Braddock? Don't worry about it. Brian also prosecutes Betsy's teammate Phantomax, a multiversal anomaly, for his various crimes. Saturnine presides over this trial and orders Phantomax erased from existence, but eventually X-Force and the Corps team up to save all reality by killing Jamie Braddock, who turns out to be destined to become the GOAT. Saturnine next appears in a 2014 issue of Amazing Spider-Man, in which Spider-UK, the Captain Britain of Earth-833, tells her that the Spider-Men and Spider-Women of alternate realities are being hunted down. Saturnine, who's trying to solve the massive issue of reality-destroying incursions, does not appreciate having her time wasted with a conversation about insect people. As the incursion storyline rockets toward its conclusion, Secret Wars by Jonathan Hickman, Brian Braddock informs the Illuminati on Earth-616 that the Captain Britain Corps has been completely destroyed. Saturnine is shown in flashback using some sort of energy power to battle the robotic army massed against Otherworld, but she and the Corps are ultimately slain. Her final act is to imprint Brian with the knowledge of the Starlight Citadel. After Secret Wars, in which the multiverse is destroyed and then recreated good as new, our next glimpse of Otherworld comes in the 2019 relaunch of Excalibur by T. Howard. The other world we have seen previously, interchangeably called Avalon in the past, is now firmly established as the Kingdom of Avalon, only one part of a much larger other world. The new Captain Britain, Betsy Braddock, discovers that Avalon has been conquered by the evil sorceress Morgan Lachey, who seeks control over all other worlds. Her opponent in war is a figure called the White Witch, who turns out to be Saturnine, ensconced in the Starlight Citadel. 
By means as yet unrevealed, Saturnine has replaced Roma and Merlin as omnibusal guardian, though she continues to style herself as magistrix. In the absence of the Captain Britain Corps, she has cultivated two orders of priestesses who serve her using powerful magic. After Jamie Braddock, who got better, takes the throne of Avalon, Betsy and her new Excalibur team force their way into the Citadel to party with Saturnine, who is very displeased that Brian no longer carries the mantle of Captain Britain. In the 2020 franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, crafted by Jonathan Hickman and Tini Howard, Saturnine orchestrates a great tournament to resolve a dispute between the mutants of Krakoa and the mutants of Arako, Krakoa's ancient twin that has been lost for centuries in the demonic world of Ammons. She attempts to seduce Brian into resuming his role as Captain Britain, but he refuses her and backs his sister. Manipulating both sides of the tournament to prevent Ammon from easily conquering Earth-616, Saturnine takes advantage of the chaos to recreate the Captain Britain Corps with a love spell channeling her affection for Brian, only to discover, to her horror, that the new Corps is comprised of infinite Betsies instead. Secure in her rule over other worlds, Saturnine must come to terms with the fact that she has everything she has ever wanted, except the man she loves, forever out of her reach. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back! When I sat down to write that, I was like, well, this one will be pretty short because she only has, what, like 60 appearances? And then... They're all bananas. First of all, they're all really hard to explain. And I had to cover all of the alternate reality versions of her also. So it was a more ambitious task than I thought it would be. But it compelled me to reread yet again Captain Britain and Excalibur, which are my faves. So it was well worth it. I wanted to mention I really loved the moment in Cable that Jerry Duggan wrote when he fails and he's talking to Scott and Jean telepathically and she reveals to the reader that she knows Scott and Jean have been listening in this whole time. She cuts it off and she just sort of says to him, that's all right, like the death of the spirit is enough or whatever. And she kind of tells him, like, get your shit together and get back up. It reminded me of the scene in Jasper's Warp with Linda McQuillan. Which yeah. is one of my favorite Saturday. That, actually, like earlier, like today, like yesterday and today, I was just rereading. Like, like real talk. One of the things, and if you're if you're a listener and you're looking for like more comics with like flawed, complicated women in in like real positions of power that are not like goody girl power characters, like those Captain Britain issues, like Linda Captain McQuillan Britain is wild. Linda McQuillan is a brilliant. She's a great character. Like she really is. You guys. When I saw the the name Captain UK on the list of the new Captains Britain, I have to say I hoped that it might be Linda back. I really love Linda. I'll say that. I won't make any promises, but I. Or it might be nice to find her and Rick in Blight's book. <laughs> God. Um, but if you're if you're looking for like a. And more just like of these cool, complex 80s Marvel, like, you know, UK female characters. Linda McCullen is such a cool character. Well, and I love that there's this great moment. It's like Brian is fighting Jim Jaspers and Merlin is talking to Roma. And it's this very like male scene where Merlin is like, yada, 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 yada. And no man will aid you. And then it cuts to, because Tom Lennox has just been murdered. Mm-hmm. Betsy is stroking out essentially yep. because she was telepathically connected like, to him and, yep. and linda has run away and saturday's like you're a superhero like what are you doing she says you're a superwoman yes specifically. yes and i and then chases her down and like it's, it's like and no man will aid you then it cuts to saturday with linda and she's just like 
get it together. Like, what is wrong with you? And Linda's like, I can't, I can't. And she's like, you're a coward. You let your world die, coward. You let your lover die, coward. And And she's punching Linda in the face. And then Linda finally snaps and backhands Saturnine across the face. And Saturnine has this huge bruise. And she goes, that's better. Go do it. Now put on the costume and go handle this. It's so good. And that, to me, it's so good. It's the iconic Saturnine scene to me. And what I loved about the Fairy Queen tournament stuff that she did in Ten of Swords was that it all felt, it felt like with every character, she was sort of doing that. Yes! She was saying, like, do you want the world not to end? Then you need to get your shit together. Yeah. Um, You need to be challenged in the way that challenges you. You need to do... You need to rise to the occasion, and I'm going to make you uncomfortable so that you can do that. Look, there's. it's not an accident that her tool here is the tarot, which is, if you want to talk about an inanimate object that'll just open the fucking library and read you to fill, mm-hmm. like, the tarot will do it. And, like, it's not surprising that, like, both Saturnine, like, I write Saturnine, and the things about her that mean a lot to me, that was, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, just to, to, to stay on topic mildly, that's one of my answers for the best Saturnine stories. Uh, specifically that scene where she um, like fights Linda McQuillan for the power. Yeah, like this fights Linda enough. to convince Linda yes. to be a superhero. Like yeah. that is one of the all-time Saturnine scenes. And like, to me, that's that's like a human version of the tarot. Like, <laughs> when I sit down with my tarot cards, it's because I'm like, I am feeling You want them to beat you up a little bit. And I need, yeah, I need someone to kind of lay me bare tell me what's going on and give me the advice I need. And, you know, do I think, look, and there are arguments as to whether the tarot is doing that through some sort of mystical messenger or whether you believe that it's just a way to separate ourselves from the ego via a layer and a a version of randomness so that we think the message we're getting is, you know, genuine and and whatever. And the idea that we don't listen to advice sometimes, we'll listen to faceless advice. Um, I think that that principle, regardless of what you, believe in or not is important and i think saturnine is like the human version of that principle and it's a principle that i myself really apply to myself i'm i'm hard on myself and i'm real with myself and Mm -hmm. um that's why i love saturnine is look like in a time where i wanted to talk about harry potter i was always a slytherin (laughs) right like i've always been the ambition the Yes. The cunning, the drive, to, uh, same. That was always what spoke to me, and it was annoying to me that in the book they were just, you know, evil Nazis. Right, like, but there's it was something like, here that's interesting. There was something really meaningful to me as a young woman about a, a version of a school you could go to where ambition was your defining virtue. Like, right, I had never been like told, like I had never framed ambition as a virtue, and seeing that at a young age was really meaningful to me. So seeing it at, you know, um, in the lens of a creator when I'm a 35-year-old woman writing this character, like, of course, those are the threads that I want to pull out of her, where her she has the power to, uh, the, the word you used in your character file that I love is galvanize. She galvanizes Linda McQuillan. Um, yes. She, you know, she has that power and she does it to so many of the characters in Ten of Swords, um, arguably, even with Betsy, um, makes her into a better thing. You know, we're still missing the real Betsy, the one that we know, Betsy Prime, whatever, um, 616 Betsy, 
616 Betsy. You all are so mean to me. <laughs> it's 616 and you have you are among friends on this podcast. Don't worry. Uh, this is a safe space to say 616. It is. Um yeah, I think I think that's what Saturnine does and I think that she has the power of like a like a really good friend or mentor, you know, who sometimes like like look, oh almost all of the really really good writing advice I've been given um over the past year has come from Jonathan and I work really really closely with him and and uh you know, we just talk, we just create stuff together um and he often gives me very very good advice. But uh boy, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't times where uh I I didn't take it for advice at first, you know. There are definitely things that I just felt like criticism. That or, I, yeah, that he said to like, me, or yeah, been like, felt oh, harsh. Uh, and I just like, you know, X out the tab with the notes or whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, close that email, and I'm like, I'm responding to that tomorrow. I don't want to read that email again right now. And right. Then like, tough love is important. Yeah, and, and... I, I think that that's what makes us better. And like, I bring that up because it's like, you know, I think I think that one of the kindest things you can be to someone else as a mentor um absolutely and i think that like you know is saturnine mentoring people not necessarily but she absolutely delivers some tough love and ten of swords yeah well and like you said about her being the tarot i like the final sequence with rill where she's sort of explaining you know all of this was preordained and it's like well but was it or are you just saying like don't worry i knew what i was doing and that's the question of the cards, right? Is it like, do the cards actually predict the future, or are they just a way of opening your understanding? Right. So and they just so tell Saturnine, you what's really going on. So there's Saturnine that- saw the cards, knew what she needed to do, and did it. Was it all preordained? Unclear. Right. Did Saturnine know what she wanted to do from the beginning, and the cards just told her how she was going to do it? Right. Like the relationship that Saturnine has with the tarot is that, I mean, the, the story of Ten of Swords is Saturnine gives a tarot reading and gets read for filth about it. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, that's it. That's the story of the event. It's like, she gives a tarot reading that tells her the truth and it depresses her. Like, yeah, the end. Yeah. The truth is you don't get to have him. You just don't. No matter how hard you try, no matter how cosmically you try, he's not yours and he won't be. And I mean, it's not, you know, it's it's hardly, hardly my invention that love spells are complicated and cruel things. Destructive. Yeah. I mean, that is uh, a fantasy fairy tale and witchcraft 101. <laughs> yeah. And that leads right into one of the reader questions, actually. So Robert Secundus of Xavier Files writes, when Ten of Swords was expanded to 22 chapters, did the narrative of the Major Arcana influence the structure of the story? The coincidence, if it was coincidence, seems really serendipitous. He also asks, Ten of Swords is an event that focuses in part in expanding, developing, and returning to things and settings in a somewhat obscure title, Classic Excalibur, and in particular focuses on developing and returning to a somewhat obscure character, Opaluna Saturnine. These are beloved aspects of X-Men to almost all who've read them, but I imagine they're foreign to a lot of readers, especially given how wretched Marvel has been over the past decade at keeping those stories and related stories in print or on Unlimited. 
How do you go about writing an event like this in a way that ensures readers who've never encountered other worlds care about things like the expansion of the Fury into the Everforge, or that readers who've never read about Saturnine care about her bittersweet ending in the final pages of Destruction? Those are really good questions. With regards to the second question, there's kind of an, an aspect of, of being a professional writer that is something I didn't even really understand until I was kind of like in it and doing it full time, which is like how acutely you become a student of narrative. The best thing I can compare it to is like music theory. Like you understand what harmony and dissonance do in a story. You begin to understand a satisfying pattern, a um uh you know a minor chord a major lift like uh <laughs> um you begin to understand the the rhythm and the beat and the chords of the story and the the feeling of it as something that for the person experiencing it that that wants harmony here or dissonance here you start to understand when the right time is to you know play the minor chord when the major one is expected and when the expected is the right move. I that is super esoteric, but I just don't know how else to describe it. And and that's that's something that Jonathan is really, really good at. Um he more than anyone else I've ever worked with is the person that's taught me that the expected is not a bad thing. Um mm-hmm. and that like how to tell a good story is not about how to twist and do the unexpected. Um but also it is like he's someone that's very good about understanding when to pull the expected thread and when to pull the unexpected thread. For me, that compass is really emotional. Like I, it's like one of the few things about which I get like super, super artsy fartsy in particular is like, you know, someone, if I'm working on a story with people and someone suggests something, it's just like, they're, you know, I'm just like, no, 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 that's not the note. That's dissonant there, you know? And I can't explain why. Like, it's just not, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. It, it's not right. It's not right. And we do a lot of that in the room, you know, and we all get like that. I can think of all of us having moments where we're, we're chewing on a story moment in our head and someone's like, well, what about this character? What about this outcome? And it, no, no, no. And we're all really good about respecting each other's no's. Like, we don't ever try mm-hmm. to push anything on someone. It's like, find the 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 chord that works for you and and play off that um so to bring that back to the question of like you know how do you introduce these characters is like you um part of it is determining what you need and if there's anything there to fill that need i'll do a peek behind the curtain for one that's pretty obvious we all sat around and brainstormed what we thought. Like before, before I ever started working on the kingdoms, we all had a conversation where we thought about what sort of kingdoms we might like to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those are interior narrative reasons. I would like X kingdom for Y. I would like this to go do this. And then some of them are visual. What do we have to break the visuals up here? And then some of them are... Uh, you know, well, I need a foil for this, so that, you know, and, and and you don't just develop it. You know, you have to kind of come at it from two sides. One is interior, what exists because it's what the characters have done. And then also what do you need and want as a composer of narrative? And you try to find the places where those things hit. And I think there's a really wonderful synergistic version of it where they, you know, where they meet in the middle, where you have a character like Saturnine, her arc, I feel like, both fulfills a interior arc for her as a character and an exterior arc 
an exterior role for us as writers of X-Men stories. So uh, it comes down to a lot of that, of, of determining, you know, what, how we ensure that those characters make sense and everything. It's, uh, you know, deciding what you need to know about them. Like, there are other stories about Saturnine that you might know more about at the end of Ten of Swords if we had told a version of the story that required different things. It's like a jam band, you know? It's like looking at the existing tune and, and playing off of it in ways that add to the overall thing. Yeah. What about the 22 chapters and the major arcana? Is That's... That... So, uh, you know, obviously we worked with a lot of, like, numbers and synergy and symbolism and, and making things fit. There are some things that are just, like, a good version of it that don't work out and so I recall there being like some talk or I maybe maybe it was just if I thought about when they announced that it was gonna be 22 chapters I remember kind of sitting there and being like okay well the major arcana is the journey of the fool and you know we mm-hmm. can, and, and then but like when you're writing an event with so many people at some point you realize you've like put enough limitations on everyone right you can't be like each issue has to represent a card, right. right? So I've already been like, your character's been given a card, and this is the chapter of the events you're writing, and this is what you have to do, and this is what you have to use. And I already feel bad giving you all of these parameters because I already feel like I'm boxing you in, and I hate to box you in because you're so good on your own. Because there's not a single writer on this event that I wouldn't trust with my jugular, you know? <laughs> right. And so it was like. It just seemed like gilding the lily. It was like, could I go over this and then be like, oh, and by the way, you're, you know, chapter eight. So make sure you get a shot of the strength card somewhere. It was just like, right. I'm already it's asking be a little too much. so much of these amazing writers and artists. Like, I, I just want to let them jam. But it would have been like, it, it's cool. Um, You know what? I There might be a way to read it where it works really well. Um. I would love to read an Xavier Files blog post. That's right. I would love to read the Xavier Files blog post of the mapping of the Major Arcana against the 22 chapters of Ten of Swords. But yeah, I'd like it on my desk Monday. (laughs) I think that in terms of other Saturnine stories that I really love, the thing that's weird is that she has been such a supporting character that this is the first one since jasper's warp where saturnine of earth nine like that saturnine really i guess outside of die by the sword where she also gets a bunch of moments but it's the first time that it feels like she's really a primary character in the narrative since alan moore's work in the 80s and i am fascinated by the love spell and the mechanics of the love spell and all sorts of things that I'm sure you can't quite tell us. I'd love to talk about the love spell, though. Why don't you talk about that and how you envisioned that and where that all... Because I have my reading, but I'm interested in... I want to hear your your take first. Talk to me about the love spell. So the way I read it was that Saturnine created the Starlight Sword in an effort to rebuild the Captain Britain Corps. And that her intention was to give it to Brian and shatter Brian and spread him through the multiverse and create a new core of Brian's. Except that didn't work out because Betsy took the sword because Brian interfered with Saturnine's plan. 
once Betsy was shattered, though, she could use the shards of Betsy as a focus for the love spell, the way that the data page lays out that a sacrifice is required or etc. So she based the spell on her love for Brian, except that it turns out that the true protector of Saturnine's heart is Betsy, not Brian. And that shocks her. And now she has the core back and has solidified her rule over other worlds and has everything she's ever aspired to, except for Brian, the thing that she truly wants. And now she has to deal with infinite Betsy Braddock Captain's Britain when just one of them is extremely irritating to her. (laughs) And uh, I'm really excited for what's to come there. And I mentioned this on Twitter, but... You know, one of the things that Jordan and I talked about on our Brian Braddock episode is that Betsy's first time out as Captain Britain is a very classic woman in the fridge story to the point where in his foreword to the Captain Britain Legacy of a Legend trade, Chris Claremont is like, that wasn't a very nice thing to do to Betsy Allen, to Alan Davis. And Claremont then immediately went about rehabbing the character and turning her into Psylocke you know, in a sort of Batgirl into Oracle way where it's like some, you know, the writer didn't like what had been done to the character and decided yeah. to give her a new role. What Dawn of X has done is recontextualize the whole story of Captain Britain so that now it has always been Betsy's story. And instead of being a woman who suffers to prop him up, it's become a story about a woman who is Captain Britain that he needed to go through a lot of struggles to become Captain Britain. And that makes sense given the trajectory of the two characters. And it was also important to me to make it so that Betsy's life before she was Psylocke was important again. Yeah. Cause it hasn't been for so long. Right, Like that's part of why some Betsy fans are confused at this unfamiliar Betsy is because she didn't exist before you know, she only existed before some of them were born. Like, Right. Like the Betsy that you're writing right now is very of a piece with the Betsy of 1986. Right. And like, that's, um, I really love that Betsy. And it was really important to me that she still matter and that her story still be told and that we still see her. And she wasn't just like this artifact of like the Claremont era that got undone and like, And I really like the synergy of that reframing of, I loved the line, a determined woman and a deserving man. That was fun. Because Brian is deserving, but Betsy wants it more. Yeah. And I think that the synergy of Saturnine being the person who does it, when Saturnine is the woman who clawed her way to omnipotence from nothing, a human with no powers, creating the new core and it's Betsy as opposed to the sort of alien paternalism of Merlin creating a core of Brian. Right. Like Betsy and Saturnine are both women that would only ever really be scared or put out by a woman just like themselves. By themselves. (laughs) Right. And that's why they are so turned off by each other because they see that in one another. And it's a shame that we never saw Betsy interact with Courtney back in the day. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure she did. Well, of course she did, but, like, we never see. Right, like, I'm sure, I'm sure they, you know, went out for drinks and, you know, had double dates and whatever. Yeah, but it's just, I I think that there's so much there, and I think that it's easy sometimes. Like, when Betsy came back from the dead, there was a scene where she's really rude to Emma 
for no particular reason. And it's a funny scene, but like Betsy doesn't know Emma. You know, they have no history together as characters. So it doesn't feel super earned. And I think it's easy to have sort of like the bitchy female characters be bitchy with each other without there being something more to it. And with Saturnine and Betsy, they have a history, even if we haven't seen a lot of it. You know, it goes all the way back to Jasper's court. That's right. Like even leaving Courtney aside, Betsy and Saturnine have a history. Well, and to, you know, to answer some of that question of how do you make these characters feel relatable, even if you don't know their whole history, because she is your brother's horrible ex-girlfriend who is very mean to you. Yeah, who you just have never seen You never liked her. She's always been bitchy to you. And now she's your boss. Like, ugh. Like. Right. My brother's horrible ex-girlfriend is my boss now. Right. Like, so that's, I mean, that's how I keep it relatable is like finding yeah. those relationships that are really, uh, you know, relatable and that are things that, that, that you can plug into and understand. And, and, you know, part of the cool part about working for Marvel is hoping that, you know, you inspire people to go back and figure out the old stuff. We all like sticking little Easter eggs and stuff in our work. Yeah, well, one of the most rewarding things about this podcast is when people telling me that they've been going back and reading classic stuff they had never read before. With this in particular, so many people have been have messaged me on Twitter like, I bought the Captain Britain trades and like things like... Well, and they're re-releasing an Excalibur Omnibus in December? Hey, I just got mine today. It's new, the Excalibur Omnibus. It's never been printed before. And it gets... It's the whole Claremont run. I heard... I'm trying to get one from one of uh, my favorite retail shops. Shout out to Books and Pictures in Portland, Oregon, I believe. My friend Katie runs it. I Yeah, I contacted her today trying to get one. Um, and she's like, I think Diamond's already sold out. So yeah. glad for the Excalibur revolution. Feeling it. Yeah, I Feeling mean, it. it's time. And that book is so fucking good. There is something really uniquely magical about it. I'm excited that more people are getting a chance to read it because I do think that your run on Excalibur has a lot of that energy to it. Thank you. You can read it by itself, but if you go back and read the Claremont and Davis or just Davis Excalibur, you'll get more out of it because little things like the Warwolves or all of the Saturnine stuff or just the way that the Captain Britain Corps is functioning and, and the way that the return of the Captain Britain Corps is this triumphant moment. Yeah. Like I'll tell you, you know, to, to be relevant to the topic that like my favorite Saturnine story is the trial. Yeah. That's my favorite one. Uh, I was really stoked when I saw you were researching for this episode because you posted Lord Mandragon and I love him. Mandragon, Mandragon, uh, however we say Mandragon. it. I always say Mandragon. Real... I'm sure it's Mandragora or Mandragon or something. I say no, Mandragon. I always, I always say Mandragon because it's like Mandragora. Right. And then Moondragon is just Moondragon. So maybe he is just Mandragon. Maybe it's just Mandragon. I don't know. Um, Mandragon. I think it might be Mandragon, actually. It's probably Mandragon. I'm going to uh, let you say it however you want. Mandragon is fine. I'm just saying I was insecure when I was recording the character file as to how to say Mandragon, Mandragon. But I love that arc also. I love the whole thing. It's the first time we see the dimensional development court. It's the first right. time we understand other worlds. It's the first time we see the other Captain's Britain. Right. No, that's what I was going to say. Like the thing about that story that makes it my favorite and is because it is just the most galaxy brain shit of like that yeah. whole, like, listen, what Alan Moore did with Captain Britain is one of my favorite things ever. And it's yeah. the like, the, just the turning inside out. And like, that's, it, it feels a little bit like what we tried to do with Otherworld, where it's like, it's just zoom out. 
turn it inside out. Yeah, there's just so it's much more than you, than you ever thought, thought yeah. possible. That scene is the first time Earth 616 has ever set on time. I yes, I'm referring that is to correct. I need that little factoid. But uh, but yeah, like I love I love that see that whole um that whole story so much is my favorite. Like that to me, that story, that scene, that feeling, the fact that even Saturnine is totally gobsmacked on page. Yeah, she she can't defend herself because she's like, you've outplayed me? Fuck, what do I yeah, do? Yeah, uh, that is just, I love it very much. If you're an Excalibur fan, go give it a read. Yeah, go, that's in Captain Britain. That's the Alan Moore. Yeah, um, go, go give it a read. It's the, the, the Alan Moore Captain Britain stories, which are just, I think, one of the greatest things to ever happen to comics. Or just him, you know, turning it inside out completely. Turning it from this very bog-standard nationalist superhero into this cosmic insanity. There's something really, really, really brilliant to me about taking the, the your, your nationalist superhero and saying... Like it's the inversion, right? The the idea is your nationalist superhero says my country matters more than every other, and right. the inversion of it says your everything you've ever known is just the same as every other. That like the Britain you defend with your whole life, there are infinite Britons just like it. It is the coolest inversion of nationalism like possible. <laughs> I think. Well, that leads into another question. I think Theoc McFinlay right. I've been loving the podcast since it started, and I've been especially appreciative of the deep dives into old school Excalibur, which is one of my biggest X-Men blind spots. Teeny's new run on Excalibur has been my favorite of the X-Books in the Dawn of X. Oh, thank you. I was prompted to write in by the previous discussions of Brian and Betsy's many cross-dimensional core-related shenanigans and the current focus on Otherworld and Saturnine in both Excalibur and Ten of Swords. Being Irish, from time to time I've seen elements of Irish mythology woven into the overall Avalon or Otherworld tapestry, but without a character from Ireland, either the Republic or the North, present to comment on or interact with those elements. We've also seen some glimpses of different notions of what it means to be British in the core, Captain UK, Captain Kimru, etc. In short, my question is, what's the best way you think we can reconcile the status of the Captain Britain Corps as paragons of Otherworld and the Omniverse with nationalism and Britain's messy colonial history? Wow, that's really good. Um, so I'm not British. I'm I, uh, so right. No, I mean I realize that, and I, and there's a reason that um, it's not that I'm like scared to do that kind of commentary and get it wrong. It's that like it wouldn't be genuine coming from me. Now, certainly, uh, I do my research, not just like you know reading textbooks and civics and stuff, but like I've always been someone that loves film and TV and music from all over the world. I've never been limited by America and my fandom of things. Uh, so um, I limited. I'm, I've never been a citizen of the UK. So there isn't a lot I have to say about the UK politically, which I realize is weird for someone writing Captain Britain. And in that, I'm really indebted to people like Alan Moore, who made Captain Britain a story about something else. Um I am really, really lucky and that I am able to work closely with folks like Al Ewing and as was recently sort of mentioned on Twitter, Cy Spurrier. Yeah, that's exciting. Very Everybody exciting. wants to know more. I love Cy. Um, him and Al are just genius brains and I go to them all the time where I'm just like, hey guys, can you check me? Can you Brit pick me on this? Yeah, I had a thing the other day where I wanted to do a story arc, but to me it seemed too much like an event from 20th century UK history 
And I had to be like, is this too close? Am I reading it wrong? Like, would this culturally be offensive or inoffensive or stupid to you guys? Like, what's the deal? And it's cool to have them to be like, like, in some cases, they're like, no, push it farther. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's a challenge to be writing it and not being British. It is. It really is. And and I I totally realize it. Uh, My irreverent commentary on it is that uh, I think arguably some of the most American pieces of pop culture ever are Red Dead Redemption and Grand Theft Auto, which are made by an English company. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I'm like, you guys get Rockstar Games and we get Teeny Howard on Excalibur. Yeah. I liked in Excalibur 13 when Brian saw the alternate like Rogue and Gambit and Jubilee Captains Britain and was just like, they're not even British. It's like, yeah, the uh, the Krakoan <laughs> at the end of the issue where you first see them reads, they're not even British. That's great. It's like the I didn't running. Realize that. I'm still I'm still brushing up on my Krakoan. I'm like learning oh. Hebrew and Krakoan at the same time. <laughs> two alphabets I'm working on. I've gotten I can like. 75% sight read Krakoan. Love that for you. Like, about 75% of the time I can see something in Krakoan and I recognize, like, the most commonly used letters, like, R-E-S-A-C. Like, all of those. Mm. And I can, like, usually, like... R-S-T-L-N-E. Like, it's Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I can, like, Wheel of Fortune it out. That's about where my Krakoan sight reading is. Where I can usually read, like, most of something and then there'll be, like, a word that I'm like, oh. but it's it's fun. But yeah, the Krakoan at the end of the issue where they first shows up reads, they aren't even British. It's like a running. That's so good. It's like their running tagline for those captains. And like for that, to me, part of it was like the, you know, showing the like uh, the absurdity of this whole thing and like the, um, you know, how Captain Britain is a kind of a, a back road into this like 616 reality defender position. And when you start playing around in the infinity of realities, it's like, is it impossible that Richter, like, no, they're all, they're all good people. They love their friend. They fight for the other world. They fight for Krakoa. So uh, you end up with a gay, depressed Mexican as Captain Britain. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that expanding other worlds so that Avalon is just one kingdom was a really important way to do that because in the old stuff, it is a little imperialist that the British Isles are the center of all realities. And so I think that separating that out to some extent has been smart. I was intrigued by the scene where Betsy has to report to the queen. Is that something you had thoughts about or? I mean, yeah, it was more of the sense of like, I imagine you'd have to, right? Like, do I think she... It's like being Captain America. Like, there's yeah, a... Yeah, like, you have to go do your photo op. You have to, like... And, I mean, I have that, you know, um, that letters patent as a data page that kind of, like, mm-hmm. lays out that, like, Captain Britain has a relationship with the crown. Right. In the same sort of nebulous is this even relevant space that monarchy arguably exists right like talking to the queen is a formality right yeah like it's you know it's um it's what you do because you're captain britain and you have to go talk to the queen if the pm or the queen or, or you know parliament needs the help of captain britain then captain britain should probably act parliament probably has no interest in being addressed by this weird archaic shit that is captain britain it's like it seems to be some sort of weird thing that these like fundamentalist wizards seem to be pissed off about. I'm not really sure. (laughs) I'm waiting for them to come back. Like I'm excited. I've enjoyed 10 of swords so much, especially because you know, those divisive weeks were the most Excalibur weeks. So of course I loved them. 
that tone is really delightful to me. But I am really excited, especially with Apocalypse out of the picture, to see what's now going to happen with Planacaba and all of that. Yeah, um, you should be. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the answer to that question on some level is that tension's supposed to be a little tricky. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, 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 to answer the question... Um... And I think the fact that Captain Britain is now a Krakoa... Yes, that's the next thing I was going to say. Like, the, when she says to Brian, your people and mine, She's yes. saying mine about Krakoans. Yes. Like, she's Captain Britain, but she's really sort of Captain Krakoa. Yes. As the Omniversal Guardian. Part of role. why I feel like I can write this arc is because Captain Britain is sort of an outsider. And Captain Britain herself doesn't really feel particularly British right now. Right. And it's like you're wearing the colors of a team that throws shit at you and you're on the field. Like, <laughs> right. Um, you know, part of it is it, it's intended to feel like, you know, uh, she's a little distant from that. And part of that is because I'm not the writer to say a lot about, um, UK imperialism, the complicated feelings that a lot of you yeah, guys right. who are my readers have. I totally get it. I'm an American. We also have a fraught and complicated relationship with our yeah often, Upsetting government. <laughs> yeah, right. Stephen Bolt writes, Firstly, thank you, Connor, for the amazing podcast. It's been so wonderful listening to in-depth analysis of all these characters I love from a pure leftist perspective, plus all the love for redheads is certainly a great ego boost. I do love a ginge. Secondly, thank you, Teeny, for the amazing comics you've been creating. I am constantly filled with delight reading your work. And an extra special thank you to the Violet Swan. She's an icon, she's a legend, and she is the moment. The Swan Princess wants what she has. <laughs> I love the Violet Swan also. She truly is the moment. Do you know, I, I keep saying about uh, that, like, one of these days, I'm just going to go completely insane and write the, like, untitled swan game. That's just like, it is a beautiful day on Krakoa, and you are a horrible and swan. And you are Captain Britain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're just, like, Captain Britain, and you're, like, knocking over people's drinks at the tea bar, and, like, stealing Cyclops's visor, and, like, running off so with good. it. So good. I wish that the swan herself was Violet, but perhaps she was. The lighting effect was a little unclear. Maybe when we see her again, she'll sure. be straight up lavender. Yeah. Stephen continues right. As someone who only knew about Saturnine in passing, Excalibur and Ten of Swords have been a wonderful introduction to her. Something I'm curious about is the nature of her role. She's described as the center of the wheel that stays constant as everything turns around her, and given her divination, seems to act as an agent of fate in some way, ensuring things are as they should be. Yet she very clearly has her own desires. She seems like a woman who loves her job, but is at the same time constrained by it. I interpreted her representation of omniversal balance as much like the Phoenix Force. I wonder how much we see of her as her role and how much of it is her personhood. Well, um, first of all, thank you so much for all your kind commentary. And I totally agree on how uh, Connor is doing a great job with this podcast. Well, thank you. I would uh, say that the question you're having about Saturnine, I think, is a good question to ask of all leaders. <laughs> Yeah. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Right. I mean, and okay, like I, you know, I wouldn't call myself an anarchist by any means, but there's a lot of thought to be had about what any leader wants out of leadership. And what does it mean that we need leaders? And is needing a leader a failing? Is being a leader a strength? These are all very interesting deep philosophical questions. I, I wish I had a better answer for you. As a writer, I'm very pleased that you've brought up that question because it means that you're engaging really deeply with the work. 
And I'm really honored for that. Um, but I think you're exactly right in that, that I, I think you're right to have that question about Saturnine. And I hesitate to answer it for you because you were clearly already engaging with the work on such a meaningful and intelligent level that I, I kind of just don't want to get in my own way. <laughs> Is that a bad answer? No, I think that's fair. I think basically wait and see because Saturnine, as I think you're indicating, is not going anywhere and it's going to be a big part of Excalibur going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's a that's for sure. She's she's remaining a big part of Excalibur. And probably part of other titles at this point because it does seem like Otherworld is something that is going to be line-wide relevant. Yeah. I mean, we know Hickman loves the Captain Britain core. Hickman has always been a mark for Captain Britain. He brings Jamie Braddock into everything he writes. <laughs> which is fun. hilarious. We love Jamie. They are fun. Uh, yeah, there are a couple characters Jonathan and I both really mark out for. And it's like Jamie and like Monet and like Sunspot. I also am a mark for Monet. Yeah, and like Sunspot. We're both big Sunspot marks. I am very excited about the Monet and Warren image in the Reign of X. Solution. Yeah, what was that about? What was that about? We'll have to find out another time. We'll have to see. I hope it's something good. If they disappoint me, I'm never reading an X-Men comic again. I hope it's something really, really, really good. I hope so. Someone smart is doing. (laughs) Dan Spinelli writes, it goes without saying, but thank you so much for your incredible podcast. It's really one of the joys of my week. And I can tell you that confidently because when the episode release was a little delayed these past two weeks, I was refreshing your Twitter feed like an idiot waiting for it to come out. Sorry about that. It has been a busy two weeks. Uh, Anyway, I'm so excited for this Saturnine episode and have two quick questions. One, do we know anything about Saturnine's life on Earth 9? Was she a banker a la Courtney Ross, a politician, a sorceress, or what? And two, since Saturnine's love spell went awry, bringing back a Captain Britain core in Betsy's image instead of Brian's, can we take it that Saturnine is actually in love with Betsy? All best, Dan. So in terms of the first point, the only thing we know about Saturnine's life on Earth-9 is it seems Zoroastrianism is the dominant religion on Earth-9, because in the Captain Britain stories in the 80s, she swears by the god Mithras. Like, which I love, by the way. Um, anyone who's read one of uh, the books I did, Euthanauts, with Nick Robles, knows that I'm a huge fan of Zoroastrian burial, which is not burial at all, and instead is a, what's called a sky burial, because yeah. several Zoroastrians believe that you should not pollute the elements of uh, air and fire with your cremation, or earth and water with your burial, and so you are left on a mountaintop to be taken by the things that need there and i think that's genuinely beautiful just just quick aside about zoroastrianism i think that it's a fun bit that alan moore threw in there because mithras and jesus christ were sort of rivals in ancient rome in terms of like the popularity religions and so the idea that it's it's an easy way to just slightly tweak an alternate earth and make it feel very alternate is the idea that the cult of Mithras became the dominant religion. And so she's just like, Mithras, what? The way that we would say, like, Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, exactly. And it's just a fun bit. Um, But no, we don't know anything about Saturnine's life on Earth-9. We have to assume that somehow she wound up on Otherworld. So that's a story that could be told at some point. If only someone was writing a book about these characters. If only someone were writing a book about her and about all of that stuff. In terms of magic, Saturnine, until this run in Excalibur, was never really seen using magic particularly, but alternate versions of her have been very gifted in sorcery. And so... Well, 
I mean, I'll, I'll speak to that. We have, I've spoken a lot about the parallels between Betsy and Saturnine as I write them in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we both see them equipped with powers that are, in addition to Betsy's powers she has. Her mutant powers, right. They both have powers that one would assume are a function of their office. Yes. So that that that's my take on that. Yeah. What I meant to say is like just because we've never seen Saturnine using magic before, it makes perfect sense that she would have been the whole time because she was Merlin and Roma's subordinate. Right. It's just that until she had the position that Roma formerly held, she didn't have the vast cosmic power that she now commands. Right. And and I mean and and I, I hate to constantly be like, yeah, yep, that's that's a good question, but like I'm a fan too. So a lot of times the questions you guys bring to me are because you guys also have good storytelling instincts because you've been reading comics for so long. So some of these questions of like, well, what about this? You haven't explained that yet. And that would be a good story. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes that's all I can say is that like, well, you know, in my dream world, I get a hundred issues of Excalibur and we'll get into all of this. It also makes sense, the idea that she cultivated this sort of society of priestesses and whatnot because the Captain Britain Corps was exterminated and someone needed to protect other worlds. So she leaned into the magic thing. That's correct. She even says, I think in one of the issues, she says, like, I was like, I was forced to open my doors. Yeah. She makes it clear that that was, you know, she needed people. It was a plan B. Right. And I think that there's also a really interesting parallel in Destruction between well not in destruction itself necessarily but in the three issues that came out in the final week the last three chapters of ten of swords where which it was super fun writing that jonathan and i like wrote those as like all one scene and that was super fun i'm sure yeah like we like we that was one of the hardest parts of the whole event was like the two of us and then pepe and mahmoud and and Marte and stefano and, and everyone working on them together but like we wrote th- those three issues were written as like one he wrote X-Men, you know, I wrote Excalibur, and we wrote, uh, you know, we worked on Destruction together. But, like, there was a lot of, like, this scene needs to move forward into your book, or backward out of mine, or... Right. And it was a really cool experience. I'd never had that before, where I'd, like, sat with another writer and been, like, we're gonna write, you know, uh, 80-something, or whatever, pages yeah. of comics as, like, like, people are going to read this, set it down, pick it, it up, like, and... very much back. like one piece. Yeah, like, you set it down, you pick it up, and the battle continues. It's meant... Yeah. I mean, listen, I was listening to, like, the Return of the King soundtrack while I was writing that. <laughs> I had, like, like battle lines drawn out and, like, whiteboard on my board because I was like, I'm moving armies! This is so hard! I have six mutants against armies! Oh, wait, one of them can create a hurricane! Like, yeah, that was helpful. <laughs> a storm and magic both got really nice moments i know people were like if magic could just teleport people into other worlds why do we have all this drama with the gate in the first place i'm like saturnine let her do it this time (laughs) you have to be welcomed in yeah vampire rules not really don't canonize that (laughs) i um but i thought there was an interesting parallel between the white priestesses who saturnine commands directly and the green priestesses who follow her philosophy but are independent and the conversation that Scott and Jean have with the Quiet Council, where the Quiet Council has to answer to an authority, but the X-Men, something that we're not supposed to have anymore, 
can follow the philosophy without necessarily being beholden. And much like the green priestesses show up to save the day in destruction, the X-Men then show up to save the day in destruction. It's pretty good, right? Yeah, (laughs) that felt good. So I'm glad I'm not super off base. (laughs) To go back to Dan's other question in terms of the love spell. Can we assume that Saturnine is actually in love with Betsy? Was this just a whole story about her overcoming compulsory heterosexuality to realize that she wants all Braddocks all the time? I love that read. I don't I don't want to get between you and the story, you know? I don't know. I think that, like the tarot, sometimes what you want, what you need are two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't always get what you want. <laughs> <laughs> but if you try sometimes. You just might find. You get what you need. Zach Larkin writes, Bertini, amazing job bringing my new favorite X crossover to life. Oh, thank you. First he asked, is Explody Boy actually dead? Did Iska kill Explody Boy? So the way we wrote Empire, that- Who he refers to as the breakout character from Empire X. The way we wrote that mini, I got us, we all wrote it like as a team and it was like a fun exercise. So uh, I got some say on what happened at the beginning, but not on what happened at the end. So I'm not the right person to ask. He goes on to ask, I loved how desperate Saturnine was to attempt her love spell and arguably designed the whole tournament itself to recreate not only the Captain Britain core, but also the infatuation of Brian Braddock himself. I have to ask, how did Saturday not know she was building a puzzle of Betsy until the last piece of her outfit? Was the mosaic magically reformed in her image for the more abstract pile of jagged shards? Or was Saturday so desperate that she held out hope Brian's shape would just come out to the very end? Either way, she must be glad she didn't have to go up against Gorgon or Magic in the Jigsaw battle. Loved your work on this instant classic, onwards to Otherworld in the Reign of X. TLDR, was Saturday genuinely shocked or just delusionally desperate? <laughs> Well, hail the reign of X. Thank you. You know, I I think it's somewhere in between. I play a lot of video games, and sometimes I realize, like, halfway into a battle that, like, it's not going to end the way I want, and, like, I'm I'm just going to... I'm Like, okay, I'm playing a game right now called Hades that's really popular, and uh, part of the thing about Hades is that uh, it's one of those games where you have to do all four levels in one run, and you keep dying, and the point of the game is to get strong enough to do all four levels in one run. But sometimes you get, like, halfway through a run and you realize, like, this isn't it, fam. Like, this isn't... <laughs> right. This isn't gonna be the one I make it out on. But you don't want to just give up because there's still something to be gotten out of it, right? Like, maybe if you just get through this battle, you'll find an item that'll give you all your health back and all your extra lives back. And you'll be able to carry on to the end. I think your question of, you know, was it shock or delusional desperation? I, I, I'm fond of, as a writer, saying the question is the answer. Will Roberts writes, Hi, Teeny. First, I'm sure you'll be getting this a lot. I just want to say, as an old-school Excalibur fan and a Brit, I'm loving all that you're doing. When I realized how fully Excalibur-entrenched Ten of Swords was, I almost did a happy cry. Okay, questions. I love the different realms of Otherworld, and I love Roma and Merlin's divide. But has the elevation of Saturnine been at the expense of Roma somewhat? Not that I'm complaining, I just wonder how Roma fits in now, and if she'll have more of a presence moving forward. For a time, Roma was weirdly essential to X-Men, and I'd be sad to see her left on the sidelines. Merlin I care less about. What can I say? Gay man. Love powerful women. I always loved Saturnine. Again, gay man. And I found her intriguing, but I always liked that the heart of the multiverse were these two strong female characters. Also, could Courtney return? Her death in Excalibur was the first time I audibly gasped in a comic. I fell in love with her in such a short space of time, and I always wanted justice for Courtney. 
Anyway, any thoughts or comments on these would be amazing. Keep up the incredible work. Oh, thank you. Um, I think I, I love I love that so many of us like really really fell in love with the X Men through Excalibur or Captain Britain. Yeah, I love how common that is. I was struck by that when I was talking to Jordan. That we yeah. had a very similar journey. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Leah Williams also is someone who like has a really really oh, deep, I love that deep love for Excalibur. It's funny because she's writing X Factor, which was like the one of the first like I really the first two X Men things I really loved were X Factor and then Excalibur. I. Leah and I sometimes are like, you're writing my favorite team and I'm writing your favorite team. Like, <laughs> But Excalibur are like my favorite team now, but like historically X-Factor were my favorite team and Excalibur were mm-hmm. her favorite team. So it's kind of funny. funny. I mean, I think we saw Roma and Ten of Swords and she looks to be having a pretty good time, right? Right. Her ears are weirdly unpointy. That's the one note is her ears should be pointy, in my opinion. Love Pepe Lorath. Love him to the ends <laughs> of the earth. Pepe, but you got to point those ears up. But, uh, but yeah, it seems that uh, Roma's free spirit thrives without strict rule, and yet Merlin's iron fist has caused things to slip through the cracks. wonder if that'll come up again. Roma has always been pretty miserable as Omniversal Guardian. Like, if you go to Yeah, and she seems, stories, like, happy now, so... She seems much happier this way, she does. even if she did, like, lose the game. But the thing about Roma is, Roma never particularly enjoyed playing the game. That yeah. was Merlin's thing. That's right. And... I've always found Roma to be somewhat passive as a character in a way that I'm interested to see her striking out on her own and doing something definitive that she wants to do as opposed to just sort of following the path that Merlin set out for her. Well, and if you read the, like, data page for the Floating Kingdom, Roma doesn't really do much as leader, and that's why people love her. She's, like, right. utterly passive, and that's why she's beloved, because she's basically, like... I am at the top and I have chosen anarchy. All will love me and party about it. Yeah, she's, I mean, it's not dissimilar to Krakoa, actually, and how the Quiet Council has just sort of allowed that vibe for the most part. Yeah, it seems to be working for them and she seems to love it. So, and and Merlin's kingdom seems to be a very different place. So, yes. weird how that works out. Yeah, and I think that, I think that Saturnine is better suited to the job, wants the job more. And Roma just sort of inherited it and always chafed at it is the vibe that I always... I don't, in general, think that uh, expectation produces good results in people. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I think you got to be a little hungry to do a good work. (laughs) As for the return of Courtney, I think it would be difficult to make that work, but I would be interested, first of all, and I, I bet that you have plans, so, you know, but... Yeah, like, I can't I can't answer questions that, like, close me off. I'm keen to see the ambiguous Courtney Ross from Claremont House of Emma era stuff get tied up. Because it's at your nine, presumably. I'm sure she'll turn back up. Um, I like the idea of, like I said earlier, learning that Saturnine's life on Earth-9 was not that dissimilar from Courtney Ross's life on Earth-616. Right. Like, here's the thing. I end up in a weird place because I'm like, am I going to go back and write stories about stuff that's already happened? Kind of. You know, that's kind of my job, right? Right. This is kind of not my job. It's kind of my job to do something new. But that makes the old stuff, like, feel right and work and make sense and sometimes can make you view it in a new life. The obvious example of this is Krakoa, the weird island that used to eat meat, is now home in the promised land. So... 
am I going to go here? Here's an answer. Am I going to go back and write a story that's just addressing a thing that's already happened and doesn't move the story forward at all? Probably not. But do I think of those things as things that happen to characters when I think about things that motivate them and move them forward? And is this a mysterious, magical Marvel universe where people who are dead or in other universes or in other timelines can change things and fix them and make them different? Yeah, sure. I love that answer. Yeah. I just would love to learn that there's more of Courtney in Saturnine than we knew there was. Or maybe that's something Saturnine wants. I don't know. There's lots of options there that I think would be interesting. I am excited to see how Saturnine and Saturnine and Courtney all come together as the story continues. Because I think, I know you love this character in all her multifaceted complexity, and so I'm excited to see where it goes. for sure. Chris Garcia asks, did you have any say on Saturnine's hair color, or was that the colorist? (laughs) I just listened to the Jordan episode. Um... We're working on it. But for, further bulletins is events warrant. Thank you for your notes. <laughs> then he says, what's your favorite new realm of Otherworld? Mine is Roma's because obviously, but although the others look scary, are there any interesting tidbits you can speak on with any other realms that you gravitated towards when creating them? Which is Saturnine's favorite? Saturnine won't tell you her favorite. I have... I don't know. I mean, I, I, I part of them, part of my game was to make them all compelling in some way, right? So I can't really have a favorite because I felt like if I had an obvious favorite, I wasn't doing my job. Right. No, you have to love them all. They're like children. Yeah. So like when I would look down at the chart and feel like I had an obvious favorite, um, uh, I really think Blightspoke is cool. Blightspoke, Blightspoke was really inspired awesome. by things like Yucca Mountain and uh, the idea of like, you know, communicating nothingness and obliteration. The idea of this badass lady sheriff who's like the only one that can walk around there. Uh, I love, so I love that. Um. I want to know what the parasite is in Hot Hive. The what? The oh, parasite oh, the in Hot, hot Hive? Hive. Yeah, oh, I love the Hot Hive. I want to know what the parasite is and if it's something that came out of Blightspoke, because I have a theory. Yeah, like I love them all. Like I mean, I, I don't. They're have all a, great. Yeah, like I don't. I don't have a favorite because can't wait to see Mercator. Yeah, like part of my job was like there. when I was sitting and working on them. If there was one that I didn't think had something about it that I really loved, I would work on it more until it did. So Sevelith is probably my favorite. Yeah, Sevelith is real sexy. I mean, they're all meant to be like just fun story. Telling, yeah, like yeah. so. Uh, I don't, I don't have a favorite because I, I, I made the whole world to play it. Jonathan and I and, and Pepe and all of us, you know, we made it to play in. So um, if I didn't love one, I, I, it wouldn't have been in there. <laughs> right. And then he asks, and I think this is an interesting question. I'm curious if it was difficult to not have Betsy Prime or 616 Betsy show up in the final issues of Ten of Swords. What was the thought process and what the payoff should be for Betsy? Can you elaborate or tease anything, or is this something that we'll have to wait for? Although it was epic and awesome, I was kind of bummed that our Betsy was not part of the final battle leading the new Captain Britain Corps. No, yeah. I I think we're supposed to be bummed by that. Like, I think we're supposed to be waiting for... Yeah, like that beautiful shot of Brian when he's just like, look up, mutants. Look up. That made me so emotional. You know, like, it's it's so beautiful. Um, Yeah, Pepe and Marte both chose that page as their favorite. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's so beautiful. It's, it's, 
it's the, the, it is the moment of which you are meant to feel robbed. <laughs> yeah, you're like, where is Betsy? Where's our Betsy? Yeah, I mean, and and, and, and Brian know, has the same thought, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, and if you've, if you've seen the solicits and you've seen the cover for sixteen, um, we're gonna go hunt for our Betsy. It seems like we're gonna have a cross time caper, which I'm excited about. Yeah, we're we're not satisfied with the world without our Betsy. Correct. I'm certainly not, and her friends and loved ones aren't either. So. Right. We've got work to do. <laughs> Disc writes, my questions are twofold. First, are the new Captains Britain, the Betsies, Betsies who had brothers, or are the brothers all mostly the Bryans who got wiped out? Secondly, can we expect Captain Avalon to hang around in Excalibur, or for Excalibur to continue being an otherworld book? I love this world and would love to see more of it post Ten of Swords. I'm sure you can't answer that second question openly, but I imagine we will see more of Captain Avalon yes. and Otherworld. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, th- totally. I, you know, uh, I've been hoping that um, people love that stuff and will love it about Excalibur going forward. But in terms of the Betsy captains, are they new beings or are they beings who already existed on those worlds or is it not? That's clear? actually the harder question to answer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get into that soon, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's... It's so impossible to say anything about that without, like, without either spoiling something or... The problem is with certain questions is they are so, like, fundamental to, like, the reality yeah. of what we're doing that if I say the wrong thing on a podcast, it gets put in a wiki and I fuck over some other writer. <laughs> right. No, exactly. I totally get it. So, yeah. I'd be careful. Satan writes. Hi, Satan. Hi, Satan. For Big fan in. of your work. I have a question for Teeny. I'm a huge fan of Marvel magic, and so I'm very intrigued by everything you're doing with Otherworld, Saturnine, and of course the idea of mutant magic. I was wondering as we move into the Reign of X, whether Teeny could summarize what we know of mutant magic, how it differs from other forms of magic, like Otherworld magic, and what is next for mutant magic and Otherworld in Reign of X. Awesome question. Uh, I think you're going to be happy going forward. Um, we, you know, we've seen in Excalibur, we, you know, we have a character who's been sort of Apocalypse's pupil um, in Richter, mm-hmm. and uh, Apocalypse has left. Right. <laughs> Poor Richter. Yeah. This so always happens. This always happens. Some always, guy, every this time. This older guy, and he goes back to his wife. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, Poor baby. Dirt baby. I love him. Yeah. That is something that's, you know, that's, um, that's cultural knowledge that we'll see more of and, and we'll understand more of what it means, right? Like Apocalypse wasn't super good at explaining it in the same way that, you know, if you read Sapiens, they talk about how we probably, we might've had a hard time talking to someone from 70,000 years ago. Um, right. Like he clearly, found something culturally important during the incredibly long years of his life um, and was able to leave some study of it before he was gone. And there are characters who want to know more about that. There is, you know, we talk a lot about tragedy and pain. There's something painful about having a guy who's been around since the beginning of mutant kind saying Eureka, I'm on the edge of my great discovery, but now I have, and now that I've used it, to gain what I wanted back, I have to go. I have to leave, right. After he's done, like, he, 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 he did his great act, and it was to get him back to his family, you know? So, uh, there are characters who will be contending with that mutant creation myth for the rest of time. So, yeah. 
And I think that the idea that mutant magic is potentially oh, to, to, more... Yeah, and to summarize, to answer the question, you know, we've seen this before, this idea of um, mutants getting together. I mean, that's what the five are, right? There's a reason that the five... And the twelve were also this, sort of, if you go back. Not that we should go back to the twelve. Don't do that. Don't do that. But, uh, you know, <laughs> Apocalypse talks before about this being what mutants in his belief are meant to do and in Excalibur 12 when he talks to the externals and he says hey you know how we've never been able to be kept apart we've never been able to die that's what's been meant for all of our people um we were the blueprint of what all of us should be doing if you study like anthropological magic and the ideas of what uh, what it is and how you get it uh it, it can't be easy. Nothing ever is. I have a question about the externals. Yeah. Now that their bones have been used in the gate and whatnot, can, like, Kandra be rezzed by the five? Or is she done? I don't know. Has anyone tried? Fair question. Because Apocalypse came back after Rogue used him to do something in Excalibur. Mm-hmm. But it seemed more final when it was done to Cruel and Kandra and these people to open that gate. I don't know. We'll see. I imagine we'll see. Yeah. And it's the X-Men, so everybody comes back eventually. I just more meant, like, was that, <laughs> was that meant to be the idea? Was that he was, like, ending them? I mean, I think I think Apocalypse and Richter had pretty strong ideas on what they thought it was doing, as far as right. the death of death and the new way forward. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'll leave that. I am the worst yeah. at answering these questions. It's fine. It's, it's fine. Really, the worst. This is why Jerry didn't want to talk about the books he's currently writing. Like, I there are it is a, it is, does get tricky because you can't give too much away. Yeah, it does. Spencer Graham writes, and this one you'll like because it's easier, and also the kind of stuff I know you did. I'd like to know if TD or the rest of the X Office come up with soundtrack ideas for their books. What song would you consider the unofficial theme of Ten of Swords? Personally, when the X-Men jump out of the sword base, I'd like to choose the battle theme from Flash Gordon. Uh, we we have a music channel on the X-Slack where we just share, like, music that we think about. Um, we have, like, playlists. And I have a bunch of playlists. I have, like, I, I have a playlist that was, like, the first 12 issues of Excalibur. And then when I finished issue 12, I, like, closed it and started a new playlist that was, like, the Ten of Swords playlist. And now I have a new one that's, like, Excalibur Beyond Ten of Swords. Leah is, like, super into playlists. She has, like, a new one for, like, every issue she writes. Like, she gets really into them. <laughs> but, yeah, I had a lot of uh, a lot of music that was, like, like, when I wrote Excalibur 15, I was listening to a lot of music that was, like, epic, like, soundtracky music. Like, the Return of the King soundtrack or, like, the Blue Monday arrangement from the Wonder Woman previews that's, like, super... Uh-huh. <laughs> like yeah. battle drums yeah i had all this music that was just like anything that feels like you could route an entire army to it you know like game of thrones or whatever mm-hmm. like big battle music um i listened to a lot of like moody girl music for betsy stuff a lot of like pj harvey and uh, saint vincent and that muna song you sent me and uh some- <laughs> Pink Light by Muna yeah, is an excellent some, some, uh, song. some Japanese stuff I love from the old Nana soundtracks. And, um, yeah, like, I, I do get really super into music. I have a lot of, like, really, like, slow, like, earthy, slow, sad, gay DJ music that's, like, Richter stuff that sounds like just, like, <laughs> like I don't know, it just sounds like getting too drunk and crying. Um, <laughs> I'm a very music-driven writer myself when I do 
right? Yeah. So I always, I always have playlists. Yeah, I'm totally a playlist person. Let's see. Uh, but you asked like, what was the Ten of Swords like uh, theme song? Um, you know, Annalise and I kind of like at one point decided that "Rain on Me" was the theme song, and then <laughs> it became "Rain on X" or "Rain of X" after, and so we were like, "Rain on me." But like specifically the part in the video where like it swaps, so it's the other like the Ariana dancers instead of the Gaga dancers, and it's literally raining blades. We were like, "That, that's our event." <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's "Rain on Me." That's- <laughs> I uh, would every week, starting with creation, just put on Hounds of Love from start to finish. As oh, I and that absolutely was it for me. Like that killed it. I feel like Under Ice would start at a dramatic moment every week, which just felt very correct. That's a real Saturnine song. Yeah, I'm looking at my uh, my Ten of Swords playlist now and seeing what's on there that I that might be good enough that I um. Oh, uh, Running Up That Hill, the Faith in the Muse cover oh, is really good. The Faith in the Muse cover is like, um, I really like Faith in the Muse because I'm a goth from the 90s. But uh, <laughs> their cover is like very drummy and like, um, mm-hmm. I don't know, a lot of stuff that had just like like drum sounding uh, in it. Um, some of the Annihilation soundtrack. Oh, that's a good choice. Some Muse was on there because it's like intense fighty music. Uh Oh, my, like, Brian and Saturnine song is uh, It's No Good by Depeche Mode. Ooh, that's good. I was listening to a lot of Cocteau Twins when I was rereading Captain Britain mm-hmm. this most recent time. I love Cocteau Twins. I love... It's just, that seemed like the right vibe. Like, Persephone by Cocteau Twins is very much like a other world song. Yes. Yep. Black Celebration by Depeche Mode also was, like, very much... Black Celebration was, like, kind of what I wrote Excalibur 12 to, was Black Celebration by Depeche Mode, and then I kind of wrote 13 to It's No Good by Depeche Mode. I kind of want a cover now um, called Personal Mithras that's just (laughs) Saturnine fantasizing about Brian, but it's Mithras instead of Jesus. I just, yeah, like, I remember remember getting real deep into listening to It's No Good on repeat, writing the Brian Saturnine parts, just, like... That's good. Don't say you're happy out here without me. I know you can't be. Like, ugh. I like in Excalibur 24, when it's the end of the cross-time caper, Mm -hmm. and Saturnine sends them back to Earth-616, and she lets Rachel get away. And it's like, oh, yeah, you got one over on me. Like, wink, you know, because she doesn't actually have any interest in capturing Rachel. That was just a a scheme to get Excalibur together. Right. But... I love when she says to Brian, because Brian's standing with Megan, and Megan just goes, grr, like a cat. Grr. At her. Um, and she just says, you know, you seem happy, Brian, like domesticity suits you, clearly. And he says, jealousy doesn't suit you. And she says something like, ruler of all I survey, but unlucky in love, I suppose I'll take it. And I assumed that that scene was something you yeah. drew on for the end of Ten of Swords, but... I love that moment because, like, Brian knows, she knows Brian knows, Megan knows, she knows that Brian, like, they're all, they all know exactly what's happening. They all know the game. Yeah. Even simple Megan is just like, this woman wants my man and she cannot have him. And I think it's just a really fun. But Saturday just sort of wistfully being like, you seem happy and that's good. It's interesting because she isn't his Courtney, but it has that vibe of... I'm talking to my ex and I'm happy for him, but I also wish it had worked out. Right. But it's like, she's not escorting. It's very, it's an interesting moment. Because the question is, did Saturnine have a Brian on Earth 9? I mean, that's, that's something I'd like to know. Well, and I, I, I you know, I, it's just like, 
I think RB did such a good job of selling those pages next to caliber 13 because I don't I don't think those pages would have look okay if I'm Brian Braddock is uh, a good guy but we are complex creatures and we sometimes love and desire someone very much but also we might feel desire when we see someone else <laughs> yeah no he's like he's only human um yeah and i i love you know the way that rb really sells those scenes of him with saturn yeah. i mean it is you buy just, it i was like oh my god there I, I saw those pages and i who wrote them was like they're going too far <laughs> like and then right and then brian's like no tricked you and i'm like you really did trick yeah. me like you tricked all of us and, but also it's like but did, yeah. did like like how hard is that for you brian to hold her you know i mean you're a you're a you're or is that his save when he sees that bessie and Xavier? that was like oh it was all a ruse <laughs> right <laughs> right like Wolverine being never like, take fear. one for the I team, never, Brian. Never cheat on my wife, ever. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, it's like obviously when Brian, it was when my scheme. Logan's like, take one for the team, and Brian's like, well, I'm, I'm married. Um, not, I wouldn't. <laughs> the last time he cheated on Megan with a Saturnine, it went really badly. Yeah, exactly. So it's like I, it's the worst possible know? idea, and it's it's there's there's no way to go through with it that doesn't just make Brian look like a heel, you know. But but you can have a lot of fun in the middle. <laughs> and now she can flirt with Betsy, the true protector of her heart, instead, <laughs> which I'm looking forward to. Because you know that Betsy and ladies is something I am down with. You know me. I save the good stuff for the page. So Yeah, exactly. So before we start to wrap up, are there any sort of final thoughts on Saturnine or on Ten of Swords that you'd like to share with the listeners? Um, you know, just that it's it's wild that I feel like I felt like I had to do so little work to make her what she needed to be and what I wanted her to be and what you guys are enjoying. Like, I know she's kind of an obscure character, but she feels just kind of like someone I've always been meant to know. She's so indelible on the page in that classic stuff that you really can just take her out of the box and put her back on stage and she works that's part of the magic of you know getting to write for um for marvel or for you know anytime and a writer gets to work on a property that is something that they've loved for a long time yeah um part of the magic of it is like going into the obscure parts and realizing sometimes really unexpectedly that there's something there that's just been always waiting for you as a storyteller yeah and i don't know as a fiercely ambitious woman (laughs) (laughs) Well, your ambition has borne out in this case, because I do think, I mean, it's certainly my favorite franchise-wide crossover since probably Inferno. I mean, I think it's a really sensational event, and it's not going to be to everyone's taste, but as I've said a couple times, it's sort of like the enigma of Amagara Fault, and like, it's the hole that was made It's the hole that's for you. And you know, as a writer, that's all I want to be. I am never... I'm never going to be everyone's favorite. That's okay. Right. Like, you can't please everyone, but if you can make certain people just really lose their minds with delight over something. Yeah. Like, I'd probably be really bad at writing, like, a Star Wars movie or something that had to, like, please everyone. That has to appeal to everyone. Right. Yeah. Like, I just wouldn't be good at that. But I have other, you know, that's part of the wonderful thing of working in, like, a room like the X Room is that there are so many writers who do so many different things that it just feels like such a complete world because everyone's serving something. Yeah. Well, I loved it. I loved this event. I love that Saturnine, who's a character I've always really loved, is now a character that people 
have heard of who aren't just like super Excalibur nerds. I'm so excited to see like cosplayers. I know. <laughs> and just like fa- the fact that there's now like fan art of like Opal Luna Saturnine around. Yes. It's, it's always invigorating to see people latch on to. I've always had a real soft spot for the more obscure characters. I mean, even someone like Megan, seeing people read Excalibur and get into Megan, a character I was obsessed with as a kid, but who is not a real mainline Marvel character most of the time, is exciting to me. And Saturnine is sort of the ultimate in that because she was always a supporting character. And now it's like, no, you have to know who this person is and you have to care. Right. And, you know. Um, And I guess that's part of it, right? Is like the joy of getting to look at her and be like, well, what did I love about her? And how do we make that the core? How do we make other people feel that? Of a story. Yeah. And how do we make that the core of a great, fun X-Men story that everyone can enjoy? And there are so many villains that just want to take over the world or destroy it or whatever. It's really fun and special to get to do something that big that comes down to something as relatable as the one that got away. Yeah. She's just like, I just want this guy to date me. And also I want an army at my beck and call again. Yep. And it would be great if the army was comprised of alternate versions of the guy I'm obsessed with. Right. And how ideal is that, right? Because then you have like one to like (laughs) stay and sleep in late on Saturday while the other one gets up to go get you coffee and bagels. Right. Like you have a whole another one who's like out fighting the demons who are trying to take you out, and then another one who's like pruning all the flowers in the Captain Britain Memorial Garden. It would be so perfect. And now it's just gonna be thousands of Betsy's. Now it's just all these... None of whom are going to want to do anything. Stupid, mouthy, beautiful, stunning, gorgeous, purple-haired women. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I guess we'll have to keep buying Excalibur by Teeny Howard. I guess we'll have to find out. By Marvel Comics. (laughs) Buy Excalibur. Buy Ten of Swords. I can't wait for the hardcover. I think it's going to read so beautifully. I'm very excited to see it. In a very weird way, the event is not going to feel real to me until I have the Ten of Swords to put next to my, like, Hawks box hardcover you know that makes total sense to me what can you tease for us about excalibur going into the reign of x um that we're we're gonna get a real understanding of what excalibur is not just as characters we know and love and a team we know and love but what they mean to krakoa and what excalibur is as a part of mutant culture and also uh that you know we're we're gonna keep seeing a lot of the new friends we've made. They're not, they're not going anywhere. And not only that, that you know there are people outside of Krakoa who might be interested in some of those people. So that the world of Excalibur is just going to continue. And you know, after Ten of Swords, uh, what our other world experts do has never been more important. So. Certainly not. That's right. Thank you for joining me again. Thank you, Connor. Your appearance on the first episode really is what jump-started this podcast in a lot of respects because people were interested to hear what you had to say about the character you were writing. And uh, the podcast has really taken off in a way I wasn't anticipating, and I think a lot of that owes to your support early on, which I appreciate. I love coming and talking to you. It's a really good way to have these conversations. Usually I tell people that I don't really like talking about these kind of things online. Um, I don't like you know, when tweets and things become wiki notifications for stories and stuff. But uh, I do really love having trusted and real and, and, and critically th- thinking and interesting conversations with people. And usually I get to do that at conventions. And this year I haven't gotten to do that at conventions. So it's been really special to have this podcast to come on and talk to you and to talk to people about 
what I do because um, really nothing would be better than getting to get on a plane next week and go see you guys and talk about this book together. But this isn't the year where we can do that. Right. We're in a weird time. It's been cool to connect with everyone through the book. Yeah. And I'm always happy to have you. And I'm sure that you'll be back again in the new year at some point. Yeah. I'll do something else that you'll want to talk to me about in a book. Yeah. Yeah. For now, why don't you just tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media, etc. Uh, I really only use Twitter and Instagram. Teeny Howard, uh, just like my name on the book, T-I-N-I Howard. Um, I'm at Teeny Howard on Twitter and Instagram. That's uh, where you can find me if you want to chat. That's all but... she wrote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can go read the stuff I write. <laughs> That's a good way to get to know me. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus transcripts of the episodes as I get them done and visual histories of each character at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. And you can write in to Cerebro with your questions, comments, and feedback at CerebroCast at gmail.com. Next week's episode will be about Jean Grey, so you might want to start writing in now, because I imagine a lot of people are going to have a lot of questions. Don't we all? Don't we all have questions about Jean Grey? That's a character file I've been dreading, but I'm excited to dive in (laughs) and tackle it as best I can. I really appreciate all the engagement from everybody. It really just makes my day to hear about how this podcast has made people rediscover their love for the X-Men or jump into the new era that's happening. Please continue to write in and to interact on Twitter and whatnot. It's a real joy. I am also someone who wishes I could get on a plane and hang out with all my friends right now. So it is nice to have internet friends to talk to about all of these characters we love so much. So thank you as always for listening and until next time, bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is... X-Men. X-Men.